Well, it's Scott. I'm back. That's right. Hope you guys have enjoyed these podcasts. That one with Lauren uh, did a little thing different when I did that. That was episode 10. I actually recorded it inside of a coffee shop in downtown Athens called The Beanery. Now, what was different about it is I've never recorded in a place where there's a bunch of things going on, like a coffee shop. So there's a lot of ambient noise. And to be honest with you, I was a little bit worried at first. I thought, well, how's this going to sound in the final recording? And I was happy with it. I was telling somebody, it was like you just, when I was listening to it, it was almost like you could just walk up to the table and sit down and joined our conversation. Lauren uh, mentioned to me that she was really happy with it as well. So look for me to do more of those in live venues, uh, coffee shops, restaurants, maybe even a grocery store, something like that. A grocery store? Why would you do it in a grocery store? Because they all have delis. And they got tables that you can sit at. And since I don't have a studio, well, that's a good place to do it. Today, I actually traveled up to Sweetwater, Tennessee. And that is on, if you're leaving from Athens on I-75, it's on your way going toward Knoxville. It's on the right there. And you just pull in. They got this cute little downtown area. And I went in there and we sat down at Cup Runneth Over. It's a coffee shop there on Main Street. It's 11 North Main Street. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and I'm going to give a shout out to them on Facebook when I post it there. Just thank them for letting me do it. I sat down with a guy that I hope is going to become a good friend. Uh, he was fun to talk to, highly intelligent, highly articulate, very well versed in history. He reads insatiably. Uh, in the podcast, he tells a story about how someone challenged him to a hundred book challenge. Basically, it's read a hundred books by the end of the year. Well, they gave him that challenge in July of this year. And he says he just kind of looked at him and laughed and said, I've, I've already surpassed that. And he talks about how he does it. And it's a way that you could do it as well. Uh, his name is Corbin Payne. I first ran across Corbin Payne because uh, I listened to a podcast called The Art of Charm. And you can download that. It's a great podcast. The guy that was interviewing him is now named, well, not now. His name is Jordan Harbinger. And Jordan has left The Art of Charm and started his own podcast called The Jordan Harbinger Show. So I'm going to put a link to both of those in there as well. I highly recommend them both. They're great podcasts, uh, great interviews on there. Well, Corbin, uh, in his story, he had, he had, how did it go? Oh, yeah, that's right. He had been listening to The Art of Charm and uh, requested Jordan Harbinger as a friend on Facebook. Well, Jordan started following him and sent some of his posts on there and reached out. Being that they're both attorneys, they started talking and Jordan invited him on to The Art of Charm. And in that podcast, I'll put a link to that as well. I have a lot of links in this one. That one was, uh, uh, they talked about how to interact with the police. Uh, Jordan's got a law degree, a law background. Corbin has a law background. He's an attorney and defense attorney. One of the things that Jordan liked about him was the fact that Corbin posts funny little antidotes and funny little things that happen in the courtroom and with his clients. And it was just really refreshing to get that side of the look on the legal and justice system. Uh, Corbin also has a blog called the Sue chef it's s-u-s-u-e chef and again there'll be a link to that but right now ladies and gentlemen i've talked too much let me introduce you to corbin Payne.
He, let's see, you said you were Air Force brat? Yes. My dad was in the Air Force for 22 years. Okay, just pull up closer in front of you. Okay. Yeah, I don't have to read your lips. I just, <laughs> we just want to hear you. Read my lips. Doesn't work well on a podcast, does it? No. But yeah, I'm, uh, my dad was in the Air Force, was in the Air Force for, man, 20 years. Um, he, I guess I had just turned 13 when he retired, and we moved back to the great world famous city of Madisonville, Tennessee. So was he originally from Madisonville? Were you born there? No, I was, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, on it, uh, when my dad was stationed there. The, uh, my dad was born in Greenville. My grandfather was with the TVA, so he moved all over Tennessee, and they, they landed in Madisonville. That's where dad went to high school. Uh, at, in, at the old Madisonville High, and uh, that's where we came back to. So I graduated from Sequoia. Oh, nice. Yes. So when was that? I moved, well, I graduated in 2008. Oh, okay. So I, I just had my 10-year ten, ten reunion, uh, I want to say back in like March, April sometime, which I think officially makes me old or middle-aged or, or something. Well, I just had my 30. Oh, okay. So, okay. does that make me a senior? <laughs> if you're middle-aged <laughs> and you had your 10. <laughs> I guess it does a little bit. Just a That's, little bit, though. It's funny because at work, I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest guy in my crew at work. Oh, good times. Right. And so a lot of these guys that are 20-something years old make a lot of old men jokes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, keep up with me. You know? Before I came over here, I had to run something to the post office. So I get there, I park, I run in, I realize I forgot something, run out, run back. I do this like two or three times because I forgot <laughs> everything I came there to, to ship. I was just, you know, in a hurry to meet you, I guess. Um, but there's, a, there's an older guy just sitting at his car laughing at me. And I see him laugh at me the first time. He is pounding his, uh, his thigh the second time. And the third time he rolls down his, down his uh, window and goes, you're too young for this. <laughs> <Cut it out. laughs> <laughs> You're like, I know. Yeah. I know. So I told him I'm an old soul and a young body. Well, it's uh, Corbin, thank you for taking time out of I know you got a busy schedule and you got family yeah. and all that. I appreciate you taking time to do this. Well, you've you've given me a cappuccino, so I I'm I'm willing to do most things for free coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so I first uh ran across you on the Art of Charm podcast, mm-hmm. uh that Jordan Harbinger, who yep. now has his own show. No Jordan Harbinger show. Shout out Jordan. It's a it's fantastic. Yeah. I commented on one of your Facebook posts one time and um he liked it or replied to a comment. Yeah. And I just totally started to go fanboy and reach out to him and I thought, nah, I'm not gonna do that. But um he does an amazing job. He does. He is probably one of the best interviewers I've ever listened to. Uh, no offense, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is my eleventh, so yeah, he's yeah. got he's got several under his belt. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 been in the business for I think twelve years at this point. He's um, man, he they, they just it was him and a bunch of buddies sitting around originally around a, a podcast mic just talking about how to get girls, and, and it from there it went into. I mean, he's. He has interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's interviewed Shaq. I think that was the first interview that Shaq gave that was over an hour. He spoke for two. It was incredible. So That was an amazing interview. I learned a lot about Shaquille O'Neal yes, yes. that I never knew. And um, that's also where Shaquille O'Neal made that offhanded comment about Flat Earth. Actually, I think 
he explained an earlier offhanded comment about Flat Earth, where he was like, and, and I'm sorry, it's been a while since I listened to that interview, but it was, he basically explained he was being sarcastic or snarky or, or whatever. Right. And just because, like, you don't think of Shaq as kind of this goofy, clowny type guy, and he said it just, you know, dead serious, like, you know, in my, I'm Shaq. You know, yeah, he, he joked. It, it sounds like Batman trying to tell a joke. It just doesn't work. It so didn't work, and and uh, but he explained it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was interesting in that podcast. The other thing I learned about Shaquille O'Neal was the uh, whole Tom shoes thing that he had been trying to get a pair of shoes made, and then he finally met the guy that runs Tom's, whose name is not Tom. Uh, it's, it, ironically, but yeah, ironically, right? And uh, he. Um, he said, look, I, I've been hearing this. I know you're wanting to do it, but, dude, we got to shut down an entire line and build an entire line just to run a pair of shoes for you. And Shaquille O'Neal says, I will pay for that entire run. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, as long as you'll donate those shoes that you donate every time somebody buys one. So that's what they did. Yeah. And he bought an entire run of shoes, which I thought was pretty cool. He's a, yeah. he's a cool guy. Yeah. He, he really was. And – very often, professional athletes get this rap as being bad businessmen or being terrible with money. And he gets in there, and he's talking. And if I recall, he, he's got this council he runs ideas by. So I think it's like a lawyer, a manager, his, his mom. His mom and his uncle. And his uncle. And basically, if they say, don't do this, he doesn't, he doesn't do it. And right. He, and that's, there's striking humility there because – it's so easy to have the type of ego that says, hey, I'm great at I'm great at basketball, and therefore I'm great at everything else. And that's how you can really run into some trouble, and I, he's got a great way to avoid that. He does, and one of the things in that interview, he said the, the reason he started that was he got his, I think it was his first million-dollar check yeah. from the NBA, and that he was broke within 24 hours. I think it was like $24,000 or $48,000 yeah, in the hole. Obscene amount of obscenely short amount of time. So if you guys listening, we are in uh, My Cup Runneth Over in Sweetwater, Tennessee. It's a coffee shop. So if you hear conversations in the background or coffee being made, that's what we're doing. So Corbin is an attorney out of Knoxville, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. a defense attorney, right? Yeah, I I do a lot of things, but I'm mostly in criminal defense work right now. Um, And that's not what I even went to law school for. I went to law school to be a business attorney, but business went south. About right around the time I was looking to graduate, obviously. Um, but one thing that uh, just about every state has, well, you, you've got to have it, is uh, the right to an attorney in a, in a criminal case. So mm-hmm. if you've ever watched on television or been arrested. I oh, have. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember you telling me this. Uh, what, one of the things they say when they read you your rights is you have the right to an attorney. If you do not, if you cannot afford one, one will be uh, provided to you. So normally that's that's through an office called the public defender's office. Mm-hmm. But the public defender can't take every case. Just one thing, there are just physical limitations to what a limited amount of people can do in a very limited amount of time. And at the same time, they can't represent co-defendants because that would be a conflict of interest. So. In those situations, the uh, local judges have been empowered to to appoint local attorneys. So, essentially, I do a lot of work as a as a private contractor for the state. Of oh, so um, business law. So here's a 
I don't know, maybe you'll give me a freebie here. <laughs> so when I'm doing podcasts, I've, I've read a couple of things. When I do podcasts and I interview people, do I need them to sign anything? Or, Well, I, I think it's pretty fair that by coming in, what they're doing is they're getting online. Excuse me, they're talking into a microphone, you're recording it, and it's going to be published. There's consent there. there. Yeah, yeah. Would not hurt you to have consent, but when... You know, we were talking about the Art of Charm, Jordan Harbinger, earlier. I was on the Art of Charm show. I talked about interacting with the police. I, I, I did not sign anything with them. It's just understood. See, and that's what I was going to ask you, if you sign anything with him, because I know he's got a law background, and I know they're very very much a legal business entity. Yes. And, uh, and they're on the ball. They know what they're doing. <laughs> right. They're on the ball. They know what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time. And I thought, well, wait a minute. To me, there's implied consent. I yes. know that if you and I yes. were talking on the phone and I recorded it, I can't use that if I don't have your implied consent. Your consent. Yeah, yeah. There are the laws around recording people are kind of weird, but in every situation, if both parties know they're being recorded and it's generally understood that this is going to be published, that's. I think you're covered. Now, the if uh, if I came back and said, well, "What we were just doing this for his personal collection," I didn't know. That might be problematic, but I, I definitely know that's what this is for. So uh, maybe in the future, just say, hey, this is going to go out to a worldwide audience of 12. Of 12. <laughs> that's right. That's about what it is. Shout out to you 12 highly uh, competent and uh, tasteful people listening to this right now. It's, it's funny the amount of people that when they hear I do this, they're like, well, how do I listen to a podcast? Or what is a podcast? <laughs> Because I put it on my Facebook, and then so I have to point people, well, this is how you listen to a podcast. This is what a podcast is. And then I'm also amazed at the amount of people who listen to podcasts that I would have never expected mm-hmm. listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Well, it's – so I, I've done a lot of research lately into book publishing. More on that later. But we went from – oh, my goodness. Like back 10 years ago, audiobooks were – one percent of the market for 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 books now it's like 17 percent and that's partly because of audible so with that you've also seen a rise in in podcast listeners uh just across the board so you know i remember about the time that podcasts were first taking off i um, used to be very political when i was in high school now i just realized system's broken move on <laughs> I, same here. I've um, got to the point where somebody asked me about voting, and I said, look, if, if voting mattered, they wouldn't let us do it. Yeah. yeah. Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, Mark Twain. I love Mark. So I, uh, when, when, when podcasting was first popular, I, I started on, on my Microsoft Zoom, that's how long ago this was, listening to some political podcast. Yeah. And it was uh, – it was it was just a bunch of dudes, normally dudes. Sometimes they were women, but there was definitely mostly dudes in the beginning just up there getting probably sipping on something alcoholic and just, talking you know, into a microphone. Yeah. So just imagine a, a you know, slightly drunk dude at a, uh, at a bar expounding for like an hour and a half, two hours on end about the political situation of the nation. And that's about what podcasting was in the, in the beginning. Uh, so I just I was like okay, uh, I tuned out. This was this was in the lead up to the oh man uh, was it the two thousand eight? Is that when was that when Obama won? It, it is. Yeah, because uh, sixteen was 
was uh, yeah. Trump. So yeah. that was eight years prior yeah, yeah. to 2008. So this was, uh, <laughs> I remember the first podcast episode I ever listened to. Uh, I, I kid you not. Somebody started off with, yeah, there's this, some dude named um, like Brock Obama <laughs> stood on the, on the courthouse steps of, of, you know, in Springfield, Illinois, and said he's going to run for president. Uh, and the only reason this is newsworthy is because, you know, he's African-American, and this is where Lincoln announced his candidacy. So, so I'm, I was just going to point this out because you'll never hear his name again. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that guy's still podcasting. I, yeah, no, I don't even remember who this was. This wasn't, this wasn't official because even back then, I think NPR was about the only official news organization who was seriously in the podcasting game. So it was just, it was, um, man, I don't even remember who this guy was. He had a blog, but... I think we've all had a blog. Yeah, we've all had. A, I've had a blog, and I've not posted in like a year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I was, I was out, and, and I mean, it was probably. I didn't start listening to it again until I had a long commute in law school, and you can only listen to the radio for two hours a day every day, for a certain amount of time before it starts repeating itself, and it gets really bad around the time of a Taylor Swift uh, re- new release. So right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my problem. I'm, the only radio station I really listen to, and you mentioned NPR, and it's not because I'm left or right. It's because they have things like the Moth Radio Hour, or they have Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or something like that. Yeah. And I enjoy those shows. Um, they're they're story-based. Instead of getting up there and saying, hey, we need to do things a certain way because liberalism is correct or because conservatism is correct, not that either doctrine's really defined anymore. Uh, they get up there and they tell a story about this one farmer in this one field out in Nowheresville, Kansas, and here has here's here's something that's going on with him. And you know, then the next week they'll talk about somebody elsewhere, and you get a pretty balanced perspective that way because it's not talking heads; it's regular Joes and Janes. And that's what I enjoy, especially about that Moth Radio Hour. Have you ever listened to any of those? I've not. I mostly listen to uh, Planet Money. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, that's an economics podcast. It's, it's fabulous. I'll have to look into that one. Um, well, uh, mainly when I listen to it, it's on the radio, just driving back and forth to work. But the Moth Radio Hour, that's one of the, one of the NPR podcasts that I listen to. What other podcasts are you listening to? Well, I, I found this new one called the Scott. He's got a last, weird last name, like Bird Song, Birdwell, Bridwell. Uh, my chemistry teacher in high school said bird shit. Bird shit. Okay, <laughs> I uh, I could I could see that. Yeah. You know, in the military, that's got a very uh, specific connotation. So that's interesting. It does. That's <laughs> um, so. Planet Money was probably the first one I got into. Um, I, see, I love probably the big one I like now is Revolutions Podcast. It's um, this guy, this, this this historian who I think graduated from his uh, grad school program right around the time of the Great Recession, uh, gets out there with tons of student debt and uh, can't find a job. <laughs> uh, not the only one in the country. So, you know, he just he just starts because he couldn't teach. He, he started this He started podcast. teaching. Yeah. And he, he went from like the legendary founding of Rome, although I forget what point he ended at. But it was it was uh, I think I was almost two hundred episodes I think, and it became enormously popular, just weirdly popular. There's a lot of people who are fascinated by Rome, so he's uh, he's got a good voice. He's very got a 
great uh, sense of narrative. So he just told that story. He recently published a book called The Storm Before the Storm, but he uh, moved on to tell, or excuse me, to, to start a new podcast, not following the story of a nation, but he starts talking about various revolutions in, in human history. So, you know, he, uh, French Revolution was a big one. There's the English Civil War. Um, there were, there was the, uh, Bolivarian independence movement in South America. So I think he's getting, I think he's gearing up. I think his next one is for the Russian Revolution. I might be, might be wrong about that one. So that's awesome. Uh, another NPR podcast is, uh, that I love is How I Built This. Oh, yeah. It's it's fascinating. They sit down with some of the top brand and creators, uh, company founders, and just talk with them through, you know, their story. So um, they just, uh, I think the most recent one was with the co-founder of Cisco Systems. Mm-hmm. And, that you know, that, that story didn't have a happy ending for her as far as, as far as Cisco was concerned. And, uh, they, you know, they don't, they don't whitewash, they don't airbrush, and... Uh, a lot of the people they interview are either still on their game or they've, they've stepped away from their particular creation for several years or more. So, you know, they're not sitting there trying to spin this wonderful, I was never wrong story. It's, it, it's pretty, pretty real and honest. So I love that. Listen to a bunch of podcasts from the wall street journal. Uh, I like, they don't get into a lot of the emotionalism of politics so they're I would I would classify them as center right, uh, and their economics policy is definitely center right. But uh, I like with their politics, they're pretty analytical. They don't get into the emotionalism of the issues. It's just kind of like uh, it's a pretty good dispassionate discussion. Um, I listen to the Jordan Harbinger show, and uh, anytime I get I get asked for a podcast recommendation, I always tell people if you're not listening to that show, you're leaving money on the table. Yeah, and um, he interviews some fascinating people. He really does. Now he's part of a network, and so I think that the network probably schedules a lot of them or hooks them up. But yeah, he's and I forget who he's with. It's like media something, anyways. But yeah, I think they probably help. And he's just he's he's a fabulous networker. He is, and and I'm also sure that because of his reach, people are reaching out to him. Yeah. I, I doubt they have trouble finding people. Yeah. Well, he, uh, we, we mentioned earlier that he was on the Art of Charm. They're, they're playing. I don't know what happened there exactly. They're, they're keeping that pretty close to the chest. But he left the Art of Charm, and he started the Jordan Harbinger show. And I think within a week. Within a week, yeah. Yeah, so I just remember one week there was nothing on there yep. on, on the Art of Charm's feed. And I wondered, well, he must be on vacation or something. And then, you know, I follow him on social media, and I just see posts about, oh, the Jordan Harbinger show. And, uh, again, he's, he's played – they've been pretty classy about not bashing one side or the other. So, again, I don't know what happened, but because they're not saying, I'm assuming it wasn't just great. Right. That's, that's kind of what I picked up. Uh, I also picked up that he's still part owner in it. So, obviously, he's we're still connected somehow. No, they still yeah. got that dance going. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 I think that's about right, but – yeah, within a week, he's got his own thing up and running. And, uh, man, I think they just recently hit their 100th episode. Oh, wow. And they've, got, they've had some fabulous interviews so far. So they get out of there, they hit the ground running, and they've done a fantastic job. So 
It's uh, some of his best interviews so far are on his old show, but I've I've got every expectation that Jordan Harbinger's show will, will be just as great, actually better. It will be. I uh, one of the things I love about podcasts, uh, and you mentioned the feed didn't have anything on it. Yeah, and you thought, oh, okay. The thing I love about doing a podcast is I the way mine is set up. I use Pocket Casts app, and it just shows me whatever's new. Mm, yeah. So I go in there, I look at it, I read the show notes and see if I want to listen to it. Some of them, it doesn't matter. I just listen to them. And um, if they don't post anything on there, I don't miss it. Yeah. I, I just don't miss it. And then you get the guys that do the history ones. Yeah. There's that one called Hardcore History. Yep. He'll do a series and then he'll be gone for a few months. Yeah. Then he'll do a series. Um, there's another guy that I listen to, Rob Bell, the Rob Bell podcast. He was a former pastor. Yes. Yes. I knew that. I knew I recognized that name. Oh, God. I love his stuff. But... Um, he was talking about it, and, and he'll take off because he'll go on tour, he'll do speaking tours, mm-hmm. or he'll just take some time off. And he said the thing that he noticed after he took a long amount of time off was when he came back, the Internet was still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I, the podcasting apps out there, are the best feature about them is you can select, and it automatically does this when you subscribe, they will put the newest episode of a show into your feed so you don't have to sit there and remember to go find that this show. show yeah. That's right. yeah, but they've also got it all saved. So I'll give you, for instance, the Spartan races are, are, are huge right now. And yeah. I'm actually getting ready to run one I'm, next weekend. Yeah, a week from today in Atlanta. But the founder of that company is an interesting guy, and he's got his own podcast show. Oh. And I'll be honest, I, I've listened to several of his episodes, and he's, he's new. He's got a good team behind him, but uh, he doesn't have quite the experience of some others. So he, um, some of his episodes are great. Some of them are, are not. So, so is he doing monologue, interviews? Interviews. Okay. So, so actually, uh, he's interviewed Jordan Harbinger before. Oh. One of the best podcast interviews I've ever listened to is his interview of um, Stephen Pressfield. Yes. Wrote a famous book called The Gates of Fire. He wrote something else because I read Legend it. of Bagger Vance, The well, War I of Art. Did the War of Art. That's yep. the one I read. Yep. I recently read that too. He's, uh, Pressfield's got a really interesting backstory. He's, uh, he's a Marine. Mm-hmm. When he got out, he decided he wanted to write. And like a lot of writers, he starred for a while. <laughs> so he wrote The Gates of Fire on a secondhand laptop, excuse me, typewriter while living out of his van. He didn't say down by the river, but I'm assuming that's where he parked this thing most right. nights. <laughs> Why not? It's Why a not? van. Right. Government cheese, man. Um, but Gates of Fire is about the Battle of Thermopylae. If you've ever seen the movie 300, yes. it's based off, that's, that's the Battle of Thermopylae. And this book is just, it's so good that it's required reading at like West Point and the Citadel and... Um, I well, think, now it's been on my reading list. Yeah, I'd recommend. Oh, and the U.S. Marine Corps officer candidates. So um, it's not, it doesn't glorify it. It's just a bunch of dudes who were realizing if they don't stop them here, if they don't really bloody the Persians' noses, then it's over. It's over. And they're willing to die for it. So 300 was an entertaining movie, but I think it very much got into, I mean, it, it's based off a graphic novel. Yeah, so, it is, and it's very much a graphic novel type exactly. of format, and I love it. I, I go do back too. and watch it I all the time. I do too. So I'm, I'm not knocking 300, but I would say if you read this book expecting a literary 300, 
that's not what it is. Yeah. It's a bunch of dudes who went through boot camp together and have lived like that all their lives, drawing a line in the sand and saying, you're not, you're not passing this. Or and if you do pass, it'll be over our dead bodies. Literally. Literally. And spoiler alert. It, it was over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the movie Titanic. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. So Pressfield went on to write some great, some other great books and stories. Um, I just listened to one he did called The Lionsgate, I think, about the Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The uh, Legend of Bagger Vance, which was made into a movie with Matt Damon and uh, Will, Will Smith. Smith. Um, and then he's kind of gone on this career of advising would-be writers the, the science behind the art of writing. So you talked about the War of Art. Obviously, the title is derived from a famous military manual called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Exactly. And it's just basically kind of this, it's almost like this long rave about, this long screed about how to fight against your inner demons and create something magnificent in terms of, in terms of writing. Or, he's specifically writing to writers, but it's, it's something that anybody who wants to do, do anything creative... Uh, they need to listen to it. And I read it, and um, writing has always been one of those things that I like doing, but uh, I've never got into long-form writing. Yeah. You know, like writing a book. I mean, writing a a blog post, writing uh, an article, something like that, I can do. I can literally sit down and bang it out and and do it. I I need editors. But uh, when I've tried to write long-form, so I'll write this article, and I think, okay, I'm going to go back and expand it. I just haven't been able to get out past that. Yeah. Now, you're in the process of writing. How do you, are you opposite? Or is it easier for you to write long form? No. In, in fact, so to back up, I'm an avid reader. I, uh, somebody challenged me to do a, to do a book challenge this year. I read a hundred books by the end of the year. Now this is, this is right after my birthday, which is middle of July. And I, I just kind of smiled and told the person I've, I've already hit that number of books this year. Oh so, really? Yeah. Um, I, I read about two to three books a week. So do you, when you say read, do you read like word for word or do you do, you read and say, okay, I, this is repeating itself. I'm going to the next chapter. I will sometimes do that, but I prefer to go word for word. Okay. So, and, and, and to be honest, one thing that's really up my game lately is, is audible. So, um, so you count that as reading a book? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I do you, too. You look at, you look at a lot of studies and you can get a lot, basically you get about the same amount of attention listening to something as you do reading it. And, uh, you know, your attention wanders, you get distracted, sure. But, um, you know, whereas before I would like, if I was going to clean my apartment or do the dishes or whatever, I would throw the television on and kind of sort of pay attention to it while I was cleaning. Now I can just throw a book on and I don't have to set aside time as much to sit down and do some reading in order to get through a book. I can listen to it while I'm driving or at the gym or cleaning or walking or whatever. So I, uh, I love that aspect of it. But um, I also do a lot of physical books, a lot of Kindle. Um, I uh, uh, go through so many books on Amazon that I get, I get some crazy rewards points for that. So I get a lot of free books too. Um, but yeah, I've, I have, since I was a kid, I've wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've got, a, I went through some of my old stuff recently 
And in kindergarten, they asked us what you wanted to be. I put, I wanted to be an illustrator. Okay. And my, uh, both my, t- I remember, I remember this because it was kind of one of those weirdly seminal moments in my life where both my, my, my teacher and my parents were like, but you don't like to draw. <laughs> and I said, no, but I like, I like to tell stories. So I want to tell stories. And they realized I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it, 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 it tickled them because if you look at like children's books, the illustrator is very often more prominent on the cover of a book than the than the writer is. It is so you know illustrated by you know Bark Brown or, or, or whoever, and uh, so I thought that meant writer. I said no, it means author. And I remember thinking that's actually a cooler word than illustrator. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny story about the children's books is my my daughter. We were living in Kentucky. We'd come down to Athens, Tennessee to visit my mom. And at the time, my grandfather on my mom's side was living there. This mm-hmm. is shortly before he passed away. He was illiterate. Mm, okay. And my daughter, um, I couldn't tell you when my kids learned to read. They've just always had books. And, and, and I don't know if they memorized these books or if they just learned to read. Mm-hmm. But at some point, they were on their own. And uh, she comes up to him one day and she goes, hey, Papa. Mm-hmm. Will you read this story to me? She climbs up in his lap. And I'm sitting there with this little nervous <laughs> tension, you know. And I don't know, do I say something? Do I intervene? Or do I just sit back and watch? And I'm, like, I'm going to sit back and watch. And my papa said, sis, I can't read, but I'll tell you what I think the pictures are saying. <laughs> so he took that book and he created this story based on the illustrator. Mm-hmm. In which the illustrator is very, very important, mm-hmm. in a, especially mm-hmm. in a children's book. And then she took it. She goes, okay, my turn. And then she read the book. Mm -hmm. Then she grabbed another one. Your turn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They went through three or four books like that. My my grandfather's telling one story based on what he saw in the pictures taking place and her telling either what she remembered or what she could actually read. Mm, That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the way you tell a story is hugely important. So you're right. I am in the process of writing a a long novel, and it will be a long novel. (laughs) Um, I'm just... I know the story in my head, partially because it's based on true events, but the way you present a scene is, is, is critically important. So I have written the first three, or three to five chapters of that book many times, mm. partially because those were the first. Once I got past those, I kind of went with it, and I've gotten better as I've gone. But the like my sister, who is um, my editor right now, and who is not afraid to tell me when something's bad, uh, just told me, no, these, like, I know what's, I, I can tell what's going on, but uh, the way you're framing it, the way you're presenting it just doesn't make sense. And I, it, it's hard for me to want to follow this. So I, she uh, is brutally honest. She is brutally honest. And you know, I, I appreciated that because I kind of knew there was something not right about it. Yeah. Like I was reading it going, I don't, if I was, if, if I hadn't written this, I don't know that I would read this voluntarily. <laughs> well, it's because you know, but I couldn't put a, I couldn't put it to words why that was, I think, I think it's because you know what you're trying mm-hmm. to convey, but it's not coming across on the page. Yes. And that's, that's going to, that, that's why you have editors. Mm-hmm. That's why you have other people reading it because I know what I'm thinking most of the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I don't know where the heck. That some things come from in my head. But I saw a meme the other day that said that sometimes the devil on my shoulder looks over at me and says, what were you thinking? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, I may have created that meme and not realized it. <laughs> That's right. 
but as far as uh, kind of, sorry, so we've gotten a little bit of feel, but go back to your question. I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, one of the reasons I went into law is because there's a strong tradition of great, clear writing in law that uh, I thought could be helpful, and, and it has been. But I tried to write. I've tried to create stories just whole cloth, mm-hmm. and I've not been successful so far. So. I'd sit down and try to outline, and it just could not, like, I could get started, or I could write the ending, but I didn't know how to do the whole thing. So, in law school, I'm in the law library one day at a computer. I'm, I'm studying or doing some project, I forget which, for finals, and that um, was the last one I had to do before I graduated, and then I was getting ready to spend all summer preparing for the bar exam. So <laughs> um, I was overwhelmed, and because I've got perfect study habits, I quit studying, and I went over to Wikipedia and lost myself for a I'm long time. Go- I'm going to say an hour because I think my parents are going to listen to this at some point. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I plead the fifth. So I, um, I remember reading this about this story or, or, or some reference being made in a class somewhere uh, about this editorial written in France in the 1890s called Jacques. So, and the reason it had been discussed is because it, it's probably one of the most famous um, persuasive pieces ever written. So, um, persuasive in what way? Well, or about what, I guess is it the was. So, it was about something called the Dreyfus Affair. And it's something I had kind of vaguely heard about because it's very important to the foundation of the Zionist political movement. So um, in the 1890s in France, this army officer named Alfred Dreyfus was, was found himself just out of the blue charged with treason against France. So the French army had realized they had a traitor in their midst and they conducted a uh, an investigation, and out of their list, and it was not a very, it was not a good investigation at all. But they looked at their invest their their, their pool of suspects, and decide just kind of made the decision that well, everybody in that pool of suspects come from these great long-standing noble French families. Oh. They have no, there, there's no motive there to betray France because they're so tied up with France. So, you know, at, at the trial, they swore, no, 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 that was not favoritism. It's just a cold, logical calculation that mm-hmm. these guys who have, for generations, their families have been in France and have been in the armed forces, they're not going to commit. There's treason. no way. No way. So there was only one you know, new man, Novus Homo, in, in the group, and that was a guy named Alfred Dreyfus. He's, uh, he was Jewish. His uh, grandfather had founded a, a, a textile company that had made them rich. Uh, now, he's, he's, he was accused of taking money for supplying information to the Germans, but uh, he was rich, so he didn't need it. And he finds himself charged with it. And his family gets him the best defense attorney in the country uh, this guy didn't believe Dreyfus was innocent but very quickly realized oh crap this guy's innocent <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and they, they, they conducted a court martial and they decided to have this court martial in secret which is um, 
in most civilized countries, secret tribunals are illegal. Illegal or done under the most stringent of circumstances. So there's, you know, when I defend um, criminal clients, it's all all public record. If you wanted to pop in, you could pop in and, and observe the proceedings. There's a reason for that. It's called public accountability. Uh, but they get in there, and the, the evidence against Dreyfus was so weak. Basically, what it really boiled what it really boiled down to was when he was accused by his interrogators of treason, he stuttered, what, 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 what are you talking about? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And they went, aha, that's what a guilty man would say. <laughs> ah, see, and I was listening on the way up here, because uh, I thought, well, I need to listen a little bit, and I was listening to your interview with... Uh, Jordan Harbinger, and you were talking about the two girls who'd walked into the store. Yeah. And one was being interviewed. She didn't. She just bought a Hello Kitty lunchbox. And the way she responded to the cop is what helped her out. Yes. Yes. But you said in that interview, had she responded another way, that said, well, obviously you're guilty. You're being yeah. defensive. Yes, exactly. The, the story there was these two people walk into, these two friends walk into a, I forget what store it was, but it was a store. And they walk out, and one of them has been charged with a crime. Uh, excuse me. One of them has, has stolen something. I forget what it was. Yeah. And they both get accused of it. Cause, and, 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 you know, you see this a lot, where two or three people walk in. One person does the stealing. The other person or persons is keeping a lookout. So that's what that looked like. So the police officers are looking into it, and the person who didn't do any theft who went in there and spent more money on an item than the amount that had been stolen um, is looking at the officer going and the officer's going we know what happened we know there was theft and uh, said I saw the video and I saw your friend steal something and the person who was innocent looked at the officer and said wait where was I where was I during this now she wasn't trying to be clever this wasn't part of some Legal strategy yeah, on her part. Yeah, she just said, wait, where was I? Because I, I didn't see that. The officer thought about it and went, if she was being a lookout, she's the most incompetent lookout in the history of Because <laughs> she wasn't there. Because she, she was in a completely different part of the store. So she ends up getting, um, man, I don't even remember how that worked out. I'm sorry, that was a long time ago. But yeah, it was... That's that's what happened. Well, I think in your interview you said that the DA looked at the officer's report and actually yeah. dismissed the charges okay. against her. Yeah, and that's that's there, there's a good chance of that. The oftentimes there are policies put down by whatever department, whatever office that the uh, investigator is a part of, that if certain if certain circumstances are met, certain um, excuse me, um, they get charged with something. And it's up to the lawyers to figure that out. And that's, that's not a terrible policy, but it does kind of abrogate the judgment of the officer. So uh, in those situations, often, like a good officer will make it very clear from the warrant that there's a little bit of suspicion there, but also that there's not a very strong case against them. So I think what ended up happening was the, uh, the uh, innocent party was to, had their case dismissed after the DA read the warrant and went, oh, we can't, we can't really support that. So that wasn't a client of mine. I remember, I remember a um, friend of mine who I was in the room when this was happening, but a friend of mine walked over and told me that story. Um, but yeah, it was. 
I have found that you talk with officers or you read a warrant, and when they've interviewed somebody and said, did you do this? The person flies off the handle and gets angry. And, you know, I find that perfectly natural. You know, if I came in, Scott, and said, hey, you, I heard you killed somebody yesterday. You're, you're going, and, and if I really meant it, you'd kind of be upset at me saying that. Right. But um, because of the type of people that most police officers interact with on a day-to-day basis, they're going to look at defensiveness and go, oh, crap. You know, this guy's or gal is, is guilty. So in my, in my legal case, one of the things that happened was um, the one entity didn't tell the courts that I had completed something. Okay. Right. So I'm, I'm driving home one day, tail lights out, I get lit up, I get took to jail because there's a warrant for my arrest because the court says I didn't complete this. Hmm. And so I go down there and I get all my, I have to go through that process. I, I get my information and I went back to, uh, she wasn't a parole officer, but she was somebody in the courts that I had dealt with before. Mm-hmm. And I go to her and I said, could you get this to the courts and tell them so they know I did this? Right. And she said, well, you can just go down to the court and give it to them. I said, you don't understand. When you're on that side of the desk, everybody's a liar. Right. And I, and I, and I know everybody's not, but you, when you're on that side of the desk, you feel like nobody on the other side is believing me. Correct. But if you do it on my behalf, she said, yeah, no problem. And then she calls me up. It's all taken care of. Everything's dropped. So all that comes back to, let's go back to the persuasive argument. This guy's accused. He mm-hmm. stutters. Mm-hmm. And now they automatically assume he's guilty. guilty. And they, they take him to, they, they court-martial him. Mm-hmm. So he's being charged with treason. And they quickly realize they're going to lose the case because of how bad the evidence is. And they manufacture evidence against him. Mm. Now, they, there's a lot of debate over this. This is a huge event in French history. A lot of people think that everything, everything was fabricated. They thought that this was the motivation from the get-go was to convict him to protect the actual accused, who was from a prominent French family. But most people, most neutral observers, think that they really thought he was guilty, and therefore they fabricated evidence against him because they didn't want a guilty man being declared innocent. So they fabricate this evidence. They communicate it to the judge without showing it to either the prosecutor or the defense attorney. Oh. Hugely illegal. Hugely illegal. Even in France at that time. Even in France at that time, yes. So he gets convicted, and uh, he gets... He, Sorry about that. You're, you're good. He gets sent to a uh, prison island in South America, and it's a tropical paradise named Devil's Island. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so he, he, ends, he spends quite a lot of time there in solitary confinement. It's, it's brutal. So that's... Um, in the meantime, his family, who have trusted in the French judicial system and the rule of law and the law courts, they continue to trust in that they try to appeal it they try to go through all the legal channels and doesn't work they get completely shut down so they basically start building a political movement so you think one of the things that got me interested in this was the parallels to something that was happening around the time I was writing this which was the um, 
shooting death. I want to say Michael Michael Brown was Michael was Brown, in, yeah, in a in a Ferguson, Missouri. Right. Yeah. So you know, before his body was cold, it was a, it was very politicized. Absolutely was. So uh, and that's 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 going that that's that's a criticism of both conservatives and liberals. It's. Um, well, even this thing right now in Saudi with Saudi yeah, Arabia, yeah. Before any evidence is out, it's totally politicized on both sides. Yes, yeah, and it becomes this flash, this political flashpoint. Right, and nobody looks at the facts. Nope, nobody tries to be objective. No, and both. And I'll be honest, both stories, both narratives that are put out there, that you know the 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 guy that was killed was had resisted, got violent, and was killed as he was restrained. And the other narrative being that he was murdered for being an opposition writer. They're both possible. The and Saudi Arabia guy. Yeah, 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 right. sorry. Um, they're, both, they're both possible. Now, one story is probably more plausible than the other. I won't get into all those details. But, you know, this is all... People believe whichever story fits into their political narrative the best. Absolutely. Without looking at any of the facts. So, excuse me, with, with, uh, with Mr. Brown in Ferguson, I remember seeing pro-police and anti-police statuses before I heard that there'd been a shooting of a black man by a white police officer. I, I, I'm, I'm being very honest there. So, um, this is kind of what they started doing with the uh, the the Dreyfus case, and it became called the Dreyfus affair. But the uh, his family went started getting a coalition of prominent people to do whatever they could, whatever was possible, and uh, ended up kind of accidentally on purpose building a political movement, and it became this this major this major thing. Uh, where it was a political flashpoint around which you know the liberal left and the conservative right fought over, and you know the liberalism and conservatism—they're both relative terms. Uh, and they switch back and forth. They—they they really do. The definitions of them do. They really do. So, um, you know, in this in that instance, the conservatives largely were wrong, but they didn't necessarily hold positions that uh, American conservatives in this day and age do. So. Just that caveat. But in the midst of all this, they find the real perpetrator, the real treasonous guy. They have a closed court-martial of this guy. And the government has become so invested in the guilt of Alfred Dreyfus that they conduct the second, the court-martial of the actual guy so poorly and so sloppily that the defense attorney could have come in drunk every day and passed out and still would have won. Oh wow! So he gets exonerated, and the, you know, and and the newspapers are just kind of kind of writing what the government says because France is a very advanced society at this point, very advanced culture. Their criminal justice system was actually one of the best in the world, and everybody just takes that for granted. So this famous writer named Emile Zola, who has kind of been following things, he's 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 political, got strong political convictions. But he's not like this Howard Stern. He's not this um, uh, Sean Hannity. He's not like this radical uh, writer. He's, he's, a, he's a famous novelist. He looks at this and goes, this is unbelievable. And he writes Jacques. And it's a, it's a 
news, excuse me, it's a, it's a uh, op-ed, an opinion editorial, but it's presented as this open letter to the president of the French Republic. And he lays out the case for Alfred Dreyfus's innocence. And it, it's pretty straightforward and dry, but the last page or two is just, it's fiery. He lays out each of the main actors against Alfred Dreyfus, accuses them of very specific crimes, and signs his name to it and publishes it. Now, he got a lot of details wrong, but that's because they didn't know all the details. He wasn't lying, but he was making some very, very, very close guesses. And the strategy there was to get them to sue him for libel. Oh. Because... So his whole intent was for them to come after him. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something that the French have that we also have, and that's called discovery. Ah. So, and there's no... There's no, um, there's no, there was no provision in French law to make that trial private or closed. So they knew, oh, we can't, if if they sue him, if they don't sue him for libel, they're they're tacitly admitting it's true. If they do sue him for libel, he's going to request everything. Everything will come out in the open. Uh huh. So it's uh, and it, it it blows up. They were. Ex- the only reason they did this was to get sued. What they didn't realize was this would be, this would be one of, come to be considered, one of the most influential uh, articles ever written, because it was on front pages all across the world. Newspapers in just about every country that had newspapers were reporting on this. It instantly divided the French. 80% of whom probably had no idea that there was any any wiggle room in uh, the debate over whether Dreyfus was innocent or not, innocent or guilty. So they, they look at this and go, this is bad. And then everybody waits, okay, well, what's the, what's the government reaction going to be? And you've got the left who are kind of looking at this going, oh, my gosh, this is a live political issue to attack the conservative government. And you've got the conservative and far-right papers going, Oh yeah, this is going to be a great fight. These <laughs> stupid liberals are going to be if it bleeds it leads. Yeah, they're going to, you know. So, you know, human nature hasn't changed in the last 120 no. years. The media hasn't either, has <laughs> no, it? No, not at all. Not at all. So this it the the concept of something going viral was not had not been articulated back then, but it went viral. No. So, everybody sits back and waits for the government reaction. And the government immediately says we're going to sue them. So everyone goes, okay, of course, so this is going to come out, and it's going to be, we're going to hear about this. Well, in Jacques Hughes, one of the things that Zola accused the government of was that the army ordered the judges to find Dreyfus guilty. Mm-hmm. And then that all these other people did these awful, terrible things. They only sued him over the one line that the army ordered the judges to find him guilty. That was the only thing they said was libelous. So none of the accusations were libelous, according to the government, in the lawsuit. Yeah. Implicitly, they were admitting to it because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to fight over it. Now, here's the thing. Well, they had good attorneys as well. They had good attorneys as well. It was was strategically brilliant because it's really hard to prove collusion. Any, Any prosecutor will tell you that. Excuse me. Especially if there are really good attorneys involved. So... They would have, and if there had been collusion, it would have been done secretly under the guise of a legitimate meeting, so it would have been impossible to prove 
even if it had happened. And like I said, most people don't think it did. Um, that's very, uh, the word collusion and secret, that's very uh, relevant. Yes, just a little bit. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and it's, it wasn't as relevant when I started this, but it's become <laughs> more relevant. Uh, I mean, it's just a very political, politically timely tale to be telling, but they sued him over that one line. Mm-hmm. And now the, the strong partisans of the government didn't really look into all the details, and the right, their, their f- favorite writers were saying, oh, yeah, they sued him, and you know, every, everybody up here knows Zola's not going to win the lawsuit. So case closed. Dreyfus was guilty. And Zola re- quickly realized, oh, crap, we just got outflanked. <laughs> and um, I mean, knew, check. Yeah, knew, knew they were going to lose that. He ended up having to flee the country, unfortunately. But at the same time, people, astute observers, looked at this and went, okay, so maybe the government didn't order a guilty verdict, but holy cow, they just implicitly admitted to a whole realm of unlawful conduct on the part of their actors. So you saw the left become pro-Dreyfus, or in the French, that Dreyfusard, mm-hmm. and the, um, in the middle start to go, oh, I think he's innocent. So that led to this whole big hoopla. I'll, I'll go into it. I, I, do, I, plan, I will be going into it in more depth in my novel, but long story short, they bring him back. They, they, they bring Dreyfus back. This is a political decision. It's not a judicial decision to bring him back and um, have a second court-martial. So essentially, uh, they, they get certain laws passed that allows a case to be reopened. It goes to their equi- the, the, the highest court in their country. I think it's called the Court of Cassation or something. And um, they basically vacate the judgment, meaning that he gets to come home. They, they bring him back. And he is not declared innocent, but the uh, basically they've taken the judgment that said he's guilty. They erased the guilty, and it's now blank, and everyone starts over from scratch. So, uh, so he's out of jail. He's out of jail, and, and we're not apologizing. Yeah, and 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 they retry him, <sighs> and he's found guilty again. And the judges say he's guilty. And, but they but they also telegraph that he shouldn't be punished. So is that a save face on yes. the part of the government? Yes, that's how it's that's how it's widely viewed. Uh, now it's this is this is like I said this is this is a huge event in French political history. This is like as big a deal for them as our civil rights movement. So mm-hmm. you know, various people have various theories, but it's viewed as a safe phasing. Safe fa- face, me, face saving. Your dyslexia. <laughs> a little bit uh, gesture by the government, by a court who's unwilling to, um, you know, in air quotes, impugn the honor of the army, and they they turn around and um, really make it clear he shouldn't be punished for this. Now, we've got this concept in our legal system called probation. Mm-hmm. meaning that you did something bad, we're going to give you a second chance, that we're going to keep an eye on you, but you don't have to go to jail for this unless you really screw up. But that's that's different from he's guilty and he shouldn't be punished. So, Right, because you are being punished. Yeah. <clears throat> just, not, just not as harshly. You're just not being Correct. confined or incarcerated, but Correct. you are being punished when you're on the probation. Correct. So um, 
you know, imagine somebody like a judge getting up there and saying, you know, you're guilty of murder. It's very clear from the evidence that you're guilty of murder, but you're free to go because we're not going to punish you. Hmm. I mean, just think about how bizarre that is. And that's what, that's what essentially what happened to Dreyfus at that second court martial. So he, I, I don't know about then, I know now, but then he still has to live with this stigma that he's guilty. Yes, absolutely. And what ends up happening is, like everybody realizes, you can't be both guilty and unpunished. So the court, all the court did was, was punt the issue. And in, well, in this weird legal limbo, a pro-Dreyfus president gets elected, and he offers to pardon okay. him. So he gets to, to live at home. And the, that becomes hugely controversial because it, implicitly if he takes a pardon, he admits, yeah, I was guilty, and I appreciate you not punishing, you me. Know, punishing me for this. So that became hugely controversial, but his, fa- his brother wrote that uh, Alfred would have been dead within a few years if he'd gone back to Devil's Island. It was just, it was that bad. Um, he, was, he was in really rough shape. So they ended up taking that deal to save Alfred's life. And then a few years later, and, I, and I'll, again, I go into much more detail in the novel, he, he's fully exonerated. Like the French government goes, yeah, we completely screwed up. You were completely innocent. And uh, So the people who have been making those decisions earlier probably cycled out of the government by this time. Somebody else comes yes. along and looks at it with fresh, neutral eyes. Yes. And says, whoa. Yeah. We see what happened here. I- exactly. And, you know, like in our own times, take the O.J. Simpson trial, the, the, the murder trial. Right. He was found not guilty by, by a jury. Now, that said, I don't think there were very many people in America who actually agreed with that verdict. Most people think O.J. Simpson is a murderer. And, and they're probably not wrong. It was just... Not he, proven, or was, the jury didn't agree. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he has to live with the stigma of... Everybody knows he killed Nicole Brown. And, or at least uh, thinks. Yeah, at least thinks. I say knows, like... They have a personal conviction that he actually pulled off this murder. Right. And he's not really worked that hard at dispelling that, that white-held conviction. So, Well, he wrote that book, If I Had it, Done It. Yeah, or If I Did It or whatever. Or something like that, yeah. So all that. And, and he also lost the civil lawsuit. That's a different burden of proof. So, you know, every dime he's made since then, I think, has been taken by her family. Um, and I, I forgot there's a second victim there so his family too but anyways every like there was a point where everybody knew even those on the right like you can tell by some of the things that they've written or that i've read that they've written and it's like yeah they they understand that they're just beating a dead horse and it's just a way to get the base all fired up so after like eight years of non-stop dreyfus being the news item everyone's exhausted so finally, some, some of his allies in their chamber of deputies, which is their equivalent of our House of Representatives, somebody makes a motion to just fully exonerate him and uh, reopen the case and take it to a court. And the, uh, the right just does not have the political willpower to oppose it. The left is pretty swept up in this historic moment. So it proceeds forward. And if I recall, it, I haven't gotten to this part of my novel, so I haven't reviewed my notes in a while, but... 
essentially by legislative vote they vacated his judgment again and when the prosecutors it was handed back to the prosecutors and they went and looked at everything and went nah we're not we're not prosecuting we're going to dismiss this. this yes dismiss this warrant yes so and that's at that point he is legally an innocent man is he alive still at this time Yes, he was. Okay. Actually, so this happened in the 1890s. This resolved, I think, in 1904. So this is relatively new history. Yes, this has this been within the last 100 right. years. Um, That's it, one it, person it, ago. Yeah. It is, yes, yes, exactly. My grandfather was born in 1919. Uh, so that's, that was right after all this happened. Alfred was alive at that point in time. Um, but regardless, he... Um, this is so recent in French history that there are still people in the military who, in the French military, who get defensive over the topic and insist that the army did no wrong and Dreyfus was actually guilty. Now, there's there's not any serious person in France, I think, who believes in his his guilt anymore. But it, it's still a relatively contentious, it, contentious issue. It's it's. Not unlike our civil rights movement. That happened, well, it's still going on, but the uh, civil rights amendment was passed, I think, in the 1960s. And it, it's still a live issue today. So, yeah, that happened. But in the, in the aftermath of the affair, um, everybody who conspired against Alfred, except for one person, leaves the military and basically try their best to fade into obscurity. Okay. Their, their hope is to be forgotten. And that largely happens. And in 1913, 1914, whenever World War I started, Alfred, who has been long and deservedly retired, puts his uniform back on and goes and volunteers for duty. To the same military that had incarcerated him? Yes, yes. And I now, that's a love of country. That's an that's a extreme love of country. He... Um, and he, he serves, and I cannot remember if he outlives the end of the war or not. He doesn't get killed in the line of duty. Uh, I, I want to say he did by several years. Um, and it's his, uh, his family, and his family sticks around in France to the extent that in, he dies, he and his brother die before World War II starts. His widow survives World War II by going into hiding. But his family's rich, so in the lead-up to World War II, they could have gotten out of France because in the 1940s, yeah. <laughs> early 1940s, France was not a safe place for Jews because it was occupied by this really friendly uh, club called the Nazis yeah. who were um, sending Jews to death camps. Instead of fleeing, they largely decided to stay in France, and they went underground, and several of his descendants... And his brother's descendants were active in the resistance. Oh wow! In fact, he lost either a daughter or a granddaughter fighting in the resistance. Um, and interestingly enough, several of the people who were several of his um, tormentors, their grandchildren, their children and grandchildren, were active in the uh, collaborationist Vichy government in France. So it just brought it full circle that his family literally put their lives on the line and died 
opposing the Germans, who Alfred was accused of, of Col- collabor- collaborating with, yeah. of, of providing treasonous intelligence to. And in the end, the people that were so morally opposed to him, who hated his guts because they thought he had done this, like their, 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 their descendants collaborated with the Germans when France was finally defeated by Germany. So it just looked at that, and man, it's just they're an incredible family. The descendants are still alive today. We got uh, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, actually, um, I don't think he's related, but I was reading somewhere that Julia Louise Dreyfus of oh, yeah. Seinfeld yeah. is descendant descended from a cousin or something of of Alfred Dreyfus. So they're uh, they're still over there. I think there some of them have immigrated to Israel. I think some of them are still in France. Uh, I remember reading an article in my research about a great-granddaughter of Alfred Dreyfus meeting up with a great-granddaughter of Emile Zola, the guy that wrote Jacques. I thought that was really cool. That is cool. Um, and you wonder how they met up. They're just like sitting yeah. in a coffee shop one day. Hey, what's your name? What's your name? Oh, that's weird. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of like, yeah, it's just, it, it was this incredible story. And one of, you know, we were, and also we were talking about the continuing relevance of the Dreyfus affair. There was a reporter in France, who was following the story, named uh, Theodore Herzl or Theodore okay. Herzl? I'm not. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And um, he was a he was a Jewish man, and his whole up until the Dreyfus affair, like his 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 philosophy was, well, if Jews stopped acting, talking, thinking, and believing like Jews, uh, then our our family won't persecute us. So, you know, take Fiddler on the Roof if. Yeah, that, that family didn't look Jewish and sound Jewish. They looked like their neighbors. They would never have been persecuted. That's that. That was his theory. But if you didn't know Dreyfus's last name, which is a Jewish last name, you would not have known he was Jewish. Just did not was not religious. Uh, dressed, acted, and thought. So he's not like wearing a tea leaf. Correct. He's not wearing a yarmulke. He's not got the. Correct. Yeah. He's as. He's as French as they are with a, yeah. with a Jewish background. Exactly. And obviously, as we discussed, very patriotically French. So they kind of looked at the situation and went, well, he gets persecuted and noticed just the, and I didn't mention this, but there were hugely violent anti-Semitic protests all over when the When you country. first started telling the story and you said that the, uh, you had the very prominent French families and you have this Dreyfus guy who's Jewish, I'm sitting here thinking, in my mind, well, yeah, who are we going to? Who yeah. are going to say is the treasonous one, the prominent French families that have been so important to France, or this Jewish family? Exactly. So, so I was wondering if this was an anti-Semitic case from the yeah. start. And again, that's, a, that's another controversial, I say controversial, a, a much debated point in, in the history of this, of this thing. Um, I mean, to this day, most police officers will tell you, or mo- most, most police advocates Mm-hmm. will tell you that racism doesn't play a part in police activity anymore. Which, and then you look at the stats, and that's not true. Yeah, because if you're one of the minority groups, you're sitting here going, well, does for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if a, if, a, if a police officer walked into the room right now, you and I probably would not even notice. We're two middle, uh, middle-class white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, never, we don't have to fear the police. No. Um, if we were sitting here with a someone who was a minority, 
they would probably notice. You may not get scared or, or nervous, but they would probably take notice. So that's that's all I'll say on that matter. But um, the no, let's say more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's get controversial. Let's let's, uh, uh, let's let's blow up for all the wrong reasons. Well, and I I'll I'll say this: when I lived in Washington State, my son, who's obviously white, and uh, his best friend is African American, mm-hmm. and. Levi grows up in one experience in life, mm-hmm. and Nick grows up in another experience in life. And Nick's father's from North Portland, and he moved him across the river into Vancouver, Washington. And Nick's father and I was talking one day, and he says, look, I am very adamant with my son. If you don't want to be treated certain ways, don't dress like this. Because mm-hmm. Nick was trying to dress how a lot of the African Americans in the hip-hop culture and stuff do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his peers, probably. A lot of his peers. And his dad, who's an executive with Nike was saying, look, when you walk in that way, you're automatically perceived a certain way. And I always hear people say, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Publishers spend a lot of money on their cover. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> they want you. And so I always tell people when they tell me that, well, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, then change your cover. Yeah. And did it, did it take away that for Nick's experience in life? And, and Levi's told me, you know, he's that when we walk in together, we get looked at. Yeah. And he says, when I walk in by myself, no I'm way. invisible. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's and that's that's not uncommon. And you know, a lot of police officers like okay, so let me Well, and that's not a police thing. That's yeah. uh going into a grocery store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going into a gas station together. Yeah. And that makes sense. I've got a lot of of attorney friends who do what's called juvenile work. Mhm. And that can be juvenile delinquency cases. So a young person commits a crime it can also be dependency and neglect claims where their parents are taking care of them to some extent or another right and a lot of those folks come out of this with this very jaded view of families um my single friends who are in it or my single female friends are in it have this jaded view of men my single male friends who are in it have this jaded view of of women and that's not because they've got a lot of experience with, you know, members of the opposite sex. That's because they've got a very particular kind of experience. And I think one of the main issues we've got in our country right now is you've got these extreme cases of bad behavior being portrayed as the norm for a particular group. Name your group. Name your group. And, and it, I'm not going to put... You know, white you know wasps, white African, excuse me, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the same category of discrimination as uh, as other minorities. But um, the tendency right now is to perceive another cultural group in the light of the behavior of some of their worst members. Well, here's what's going on in my town right now, and uh, Athens. Athens. There's a uh, there's a Order of Druids that, uh, well, there's a priest down there named Angela Wilson. She's episode four on this podcast. Is this a Druidic priest? Yes. Okay. She's an Arc Druid. Okay. And uh, she went to the city of Athens and uh, got a permit, has paid the insurance to hold a Druid ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, shaman is the ritual. It's, it's about the honoring of their oh, ancestors. Oh, shaman? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, She's got this permit to do it. Well, all That's of a going sudden, over like a lead balloon. Yeah. Well, among some very 
what I would say are ignorant of their own history Christians and ignorant of what a Druid is Christians. What they're saying is, oh, Druid slash pagan, they're obviously going to be putting virgins on the altar, they're drinking blood, they're sacrificing goats to the devil. And they've got a very specific lens at which they're looking mm-hmm. at this ritual through. Mm-hmm. Where if they would just broaden that lens and look out a little bit, they'd be able to realize, okay, it's not my worst case scenario. Right. There's, right. This is very, something very innocuous. And I'm fairly confident that animal sacrifice is illegal, even in a religious setting. Even in a religious setting. And I'm fairly confident that these Christians who are upset about it um, aren't going to talk about that the founding of their faith actually involved animal sacrifice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll say this. I, I am a Christian, and I am very I'm serious about my faith, but I look at something like that. I obviously disagree with what they're doing, but at the end of the day, I don't want my particular faith, my particular worship experience to be monitored or whatever by the government and in a just completely pragmatic sort of way, if we insist upon that for druids or name, name your... Name your faith. Name, name your, faith. your religious group. You're opening yourself up. Well, and that's... that's that sort of... That's what I told somebody. Somebody was asking me about it. I said, look, one, you wrap yourself up in God and country. Yeah. As a, as a believer. You, you just wrap yourself up in it. This person is exercising their right to assembly, the yeah, right to gather, yeah. the right to free speech. They've paid the permit. And freedom of religion. That's also in And First freedom Amendment. of religion. And you're upset about it. Yeah. Two, they're practicing a, a pagan ritual. The two holy days that you have on your Christian calendar. Easter and Christmas. Easter and Christmas are based on pagan rituals. Uh, Easter was moved from Passover intentionally so when you go back and look at this stuff now I'm not saying you can't have some religious aspects you can't take a a, a holiday that's not Christian and and put some Christian meaning and imagery and things behind it and it, and it won't be very sacred and it won't be very meaningful to the followers and I'm not saying it's going to be harmful to the followers but do understand that you have your own roots there as well and and to your point what would you do if they came to your church mm-hmm. and they started walking around with signs and singing and chanting and doing all that stuff at your church that disrupt your worship service yeah and that that actually does happen uh, to good churches as well as bad ones i mean right. westboro but i mean here's 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 the thing i think and this is something that's really jumped out at me as far as the whole dreyfus affair it because they've got different They've got their own form of, of discrimination and political dysfunction from us. So as an outsider, I can look at that and see it for all its flaws. It's harder for me to look at my own system and see those same flaws because I operate within it. But one thing that really jumped out at me in the Dreyfus affair was nobody, n- neither side was talking to the other. They were trying to use the Dreyfus affair as this big club to beat each other with. It's what we're doing in politics today. And it's what we're, yes. We talk past each other. Yes. So I remember the, with, uh, we just recently had those Kavanaugh hearings. And uh, <laughs> I just, and I'm, again, I'm not going to take give, a side or yeah, anything. Right in, in this. Um, but 
I just, I remember sitting at a table with two great people who are from opposite, polar opposite uh, politics, who don't normally talk politics, and they're screaming at each other, talk, like literally talking at the same time. So, and they weren't responding to anything the other said. It was, it was almost like they were monologuing at each other. I and, call that uh, Facebook ping pong. Yes. Oh, that's a great term. That's a great term. I'm totally stealing that. Steal that. I can't put that in, in my book because they didn't have Facebook in the 1890s. Right. Well, I originally started calling it because I used to be in the ministry. And I originally started calling it Bible ping pong. Mm. So you start talking to somebody about an issue of faith. Yeah, but the, and the, yeah, but this Bible says this. Oh, but this passage says that. No, no, but we're talking about this specific issue. We're not yeah. talking about all these different. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it was, I first noticed it in... The reading about the Dreyfus affair, and then like, and I, I'm not proud of this, but my response was, "Man, those friends were really primitive." And then, <laughs> you know, log on to Facebook the next day. Oh crap, we do it too. <laughs> I'm doing it. So I, we we're we're we're, at, we're and we're probably worse about it than they were. So how do you avoid doing it? You know, I think part of it is. What I do personally is I try to understand where the other side's coming from. Uh, I'm, I, I come from a politically conservative background. Mm-hmm. Most of my beliefs are pretty conservative. Got some things that I agree with liberals on, such as legal marijuana legalization, for instance. Exactly. Um, and there are certain things that I'm adamantly opposed to or adamantly in favor of, and I'll, I'm not going to back off those positions. But I... I remember talking with a friend of mine who was explaining her side of the issue on something I disagreed with her on, and I went, that's logical. Yeah. Now, she started with some, our assumptions were different. She's got a different way of looking at the world. She grew up differently than I did. Um, she had different life experiences than I did, different beliefs than I did. But if you, if you assume that her assumptions were true, and that's what an assumption is, it's a fact that for the sake of argument, you assume is true, um, or, or you, you take as true, and you follow that out logically, she was right. And that blew my mind. Yeah. And when I explained my side of it, she acknowledged that's logical. Now, you're wrong about the assumptions, but that's logical. So I try to, I try to sit there and understand where they're coming from, what their arguments are, why they believe something, and we can have a debate over, like, I find it's better to discuss the assumptions as opposed to the conclusions, because very often the conclusion is right based on the assumptions. So with your Druidic friend, as I said, I, I disagree with that religion fundamentally. Um, but if I sit there and disagree with her conclusions, she's going to say, well, what about da 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 and because she holds that assumption so tightly, and I've got my own assumptions, I'm not criticizing her at all. Um, if we run with that, then logically it's going to play out that our conclusion is correct. So you just wasted a bunch of time. So let's talk about our deep-seated beliefs. And most people are, com- are, are relatively comfortable sitting and talking about why they believe something because it's telling their life story, which I think is deep down fundamentally what we all really desire is to tell our own stories well when I interviewed her <clears throat> um, and I hate to call it an interview because I think an interview is a question you answer question mm-hmm. you answer it, we had our conversation mm-hmm. obviously I come from a Judeo-Christian background mm-hmm. 
she's druid. I don't know what druid is. I got all my assumptions. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Remember that movie? And I told told this when I was talking to her. Uh, when I think of pagans, I think of that movie Dragnet with a. Uh, um, gosh. He had the salt. He had the soccer ball. Wilson. Uh, oh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks and uh, somebody else was in it. I think that movie was back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's just a comedy. And um, so I just sat down with him. We just started having a conversation. What I found out is that <clears throat> her and I have a lot of the same fundamental beliefs about people, about mm-hmm. life, about nature, uh, about the divine. We use a lot of different terminologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I found out is that a lot of her traditions... Uh, or my traditions. For example, I grew up hearing about planting in the signs. And I grew up hearing about, you know, a woolly worm has a certain color or has a certain bands of color, then it's going to be a certain winter. Hmm. You know, you had all these old signs that I grew up listening to, uh, things that I called wives' tales mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Well, that has a staunch druid, druid tradition. In hmm. it. Um, a lot of the things that we have at Christmas, like the Christmas tree, you know, the, that's their symbol for a tree of life. Well, in my Christian tradition, we have a tree of life that we talk about. The, the one in Eden, you mean? The one in Eden. Yeah. And, and all that, how all these things tie together. So what I found out is, could we find things to talk past each other on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without much effort. <laughs> yeah, without much effort. Could we find things that we found in common and, and build a relationship? Absolutely, we did. I've also found, though... When I was talking to somebody about this, you know, they do the, but, 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 but wait, wait, what about, I said, look, I got friends that I went to college with, that I was very close to with, uh, that we studied side by side and getting our degrees in theology that I disagree with. Yeah. And. Went to the same school. Same school, same same professors, same books, same denominations. Same same statements of faith. Right. But we vehemently disagree on some things. Yeah. I'm wasting my time focusing on that. Yeah. I went to Liberty University in yeah. Lynchburg, Virginia. I got friends that went there to get their master's. Yeah. it's. Uh, oh, I loved it. And then when I left there, I got a business degree there, and I came to the University of Tennessee for law school. What surprised me was there was much more difference of opinion at Liberty yes. than there was at UT. And we're all supposedly on this, I'm saying this in air quotes, same side. Um, at Liberty, and there was a lot. There was more of a monoculture at UT. And there was a lot more differences of opinion at Liberty, uh, and that that was an interesting experience. And I, I think most people, especially ones that like live in the same culture, same society, if, if they come from different beliefs or the same beliefs, are going to probably have more things they can agree on versus things they can disagree on. Uh, and I've heard people say 90% of all religions agree with each other. It's probably a skewed number, but let's run with that for just a second. If that was true, then we're disagreeing on 10% of things. Those 10% are very important. But if you'd sat down with your Druid friend, and I, I don't know much about Druidism, but I think there's some animalistic aspects of it. I think in, their, in the early cultures, back when a lot of faiths, had some animalistic aspects. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where a lot of people forget. They, too, have... Well, you see this in history. Um, as tribes grow or, or as time goes on, you become aware of things. Yeah. I mean, we're no longer bloodletting. Yeah. Uh, you know, we become aware. Oh, maybe that 
isn't the way to do it. And so you move forward. Yeah. And I had this conversation with a guy at work the other day. He said, man, things are horrible today. And I said, no, they're not. Things aren't, this isn't the worst times in human no. history. This is a lot better than when I was growing up in the 80s. And I thought it was pretty darn yeah. good in the 80s. Or even with that, and it's not, nothing has been as bad as the 1860s when we were, you know, shooting at each other. Shooting at each other over, right here where we're st- sitting. Yes. Tennessee was very much a divided state. But, you know, if you, sat, if you had sat down, coming from a Christian, Judeo-Christian background, if you'd sat down with this uh, uh, priestess friend of yours and said something along the lines of, you know, I know you believe in spirits and, you know, harmony and all that, but you need to understand that spirits are demonic. Right. And if you're following them, you're following Satan. And from a Judeo-Christian perspective, that is probably that that's pretty accurate it's pretty much assumed yes <clears throat> i'll say assumed yeah yeah and i i would i would agree with that with that that um stance but walking up to somebody like that and opening with you know you're following satan right um that's a great way to have a nice conversation and that's what's been happening about this little ceremony exactly. she's put together and where this ceremony is again honoring the dead and, and going forward I find it ironic, though, that a lot of the people that are against this, their church is hosting a trunk or treat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah. You're taking a you're taking a pagan festival in the effort to reach out to people. Yeah. And bring them into your faith. Yeah. You're using it to proselytize. Yeah. And growing up in the '90s and even the uh, early 2000s, whether or not to have a trunk or treat or a fall festival was very controversial within churches themselves. Well, my. My mom's church does it. And she said something to me about it. And I said, why are you guys doing that? She said, well, so to be safe. You know, because there's this assumption out here. And you're an attorney. I'd be curious if you ever looked into this. You always hear everything's ever Halloween. Be sure to check your kids' candy. Because people slip razors into them. I, for years, spent time ever after every Halloween searching the Internet to see if I can find one case where any kid had ever bit into an apple with a razor, a candy bar with a needle, uh, had ever got candy that was tainted. I found one case in Texas where a father in a custody custody dispute poisoned his child's Halloween candy. But no other time have I ever found that anybody's Halloween candy has ever been tampered with. I've actually looked it up on Snopes. I did this a while back for... Before I was an attorney for unrelated reasons, the Snopes has, or at least then, had classified it as a moral panic. Yeah. Uh, and they, I think they pointed out a couple, I mean, like literally like two or three examples where something like that had happened in the entirety of the United States. Well, and in most cases, what I found out, and this is also what I find out to be true about uh, crimes against children... It's mostly committed by someone close to them. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's worried about this stranger danger. Yeah. Which is, those strangers commit crimes? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So if you've got children, warn them about the danger of strangers. But also work, talk to them about the stranger, the dangers of... Someone close someone to Someone close to you, yeah. Now, if you were to go to ask my kids growing up, who's got the best candy? Let's say strangers. Yeah. <laughs> I told my kids, hey, strangers have the best candy. They are... I did not, I, 
my problem with the whole trunk or treat, my problem with the whole searching your kids uh, candy, my problem with a lot of things that are going with stranger danger concept is you're teaching your children to live in fear. Mm -hmm. And I think you should teach your children to be aware, to know their circumstances, to know their surroundings, to be wise, but not to live in fear, not to make choices based on fear. And I think, and that's what's going on with politics today. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what's going on with religion today and what you were talking about as far as that 10% or being at Liberty. That was the same, my same experience at Clear Creek when I was going to Clear Creek Baptist Bible College. Religion becomes so personal and I have to absolutely be right. And once I have this conviction that I believe this to be absolutely true, when you challenge that, well, now you're attacking me personally. And we, we don't remove it into a logical argument and, or discussion. Mm-hmm. Same thing with politics. Once I made this decision over here that marijuana is bad, mm-hmm. that Reefer Madness is an actual documentary and I should pay attention to it, it's hard for me to say, eh, let's legalize it because now you're telling me that I'm wrong. Yeah. And there's a personal attack against me. Yeah. Well, and what, well, you, something that's contributing to this, I think what you're describing is tribalism to some extent. Right. And what, what you see happening uh, on a broader scale, nationally and even locally, is you see all these issues getting swept up into these campaign platforms. Mm-hmm. So right now, like the forces that are in favor of legalizing marijuana tend to be kind of, you know, the, the weird fringe groups like anarchists and uh, extreme libertarians. They're the ones getting the press. They're the ones getting the press. And a, a lot of, um, I think there's probably more liberals in support of marijuana legalization than there are conservatives. And it's also been kind of tied into this whole debate over whether the police are the good guys or the bad guys, which is a dumb debate, uh, to be honest with you. That's my perspective as a defense attorney. Um, so something like something like that, if it's hard for someone like with a conservative leaning to cross the picket line on that one issue because if you cross the picket line on one issue like we're not programmed to do that anymore if you cross it on one issue everyone assumes you've crossed it, crossed it on every issue and that's the assumption that a lot of people have with me because i i consider myself to have a very conservative mm-hmm. basis on how i view life mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm okay with the legalization of marijuana, mm-hmm. uh, because I'm okay with the legalization of uh, you're allowed to marry whoever you want to marry, those two things, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a liberal. Yeah. I mean, my, I, when I moved down here and I, somebody asked about that stuff and I spoke on it, um, well, you're just a liberal. You've been on the, on the left coast too long you know you've been at portland oregon area you probably believe no i don't believe those other things uh yeah yeah, i do believe we need to have a good strong immigration policy that's a pretty conservative thing yeah yes i do believe we need to be fiscally responsible but these other issues over here guys why yeah i disagree with you on yeah and i I find that in debates and discussions all the time and as a i'm i'm considered a millennial and on this issue of uh you know crossing the, the, the lines on political issues, on, on, excuse me, single issues, we do that extremely well and we do it extremely poorly. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think we're probably more predisposed to acknowledging, yeah, you can be liberal and support certain things, and you can be conservative and support certain other things that 
don't mesh with the broader platform of your campaign, uh, of, your, of your political party, of your political coalition that you're behind. Um, but at the same time, on some of the really important things, we tend to scream at each other louder than any other generation. So I don't know if we're better at it or worse. <laughs> we well, just it's, are. it's in part because, uh, you know, one of the best things that's happened in my lifetime and one of the worst things that's happened in my lifetime is the Internet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it just makes it really easy. It's like uh, I was talking to some other day about, oh, here's what it was. The election was coming up. They asked me if I'm going to vote. Who am I voting for? I'm like, I don't vote. They're like, why don't you vote? I said, because I don't want to vote. And, uh, well, you're in the military. You should vote. This is your responsibility, your constitution. Uh, what was it? Your, uh, your obligation mm-hmm. to vote. And I said, no, no, no. I have a right to vote. That doesn't mean I have to vote. It's like you have a right to carry a gun. doesn't mean you have to carry a gun. You have a right to free speech. doesn't mean you need to open your mouth. Matter of fact, I wish some people would shut theirs. Yeah. Just yeah. because something's a right doesn't mean I have to do it. And one of the things with the Internet and the ability for me to get a, a cheap laptop and a couple bucks worth of equipment and jump online, anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Or anybody can jump on Facebook and just rant. And then we just get slammed. I want to ask you earlier how you dealt with a lot of that stuff. Um, one of the rules I have in Facebook ping pong, I I reply once. Yeah. And I, and sometimes I'm gonna say I'm gonna reply once, but I'm if you want to have a conversation face to face, I'll do it. Yeah. But I'm not playing Facebook ping pong. Right. And then I'll give my reply and I'll go on. Yeah. Because because here's the thing. We tend to sermonize at each other. Absolutely. And I I go to church weekly at least weekly, sometimes more. I do listen to sermons. If I wanted to listen to more sermons, I'd go to more church services. <laughs> or I'd listen to podcasts <laughs> more. I'd listen to podcasts I'd more listen to religious podcasts. So I, I think the thing is, one, one of the, I've been doing a lot of research into storybook, to, to, to story writing, into writing in general. I thought it was, like the image I had in my head of an artist creating art was like Beethoven waking up one morning, having a cup of coffee, walking over to a piano, cracking his knuckles, and then just pounding out Beethoven's fifth. Right. Just it came to him like a thunderbolt of creativity. And it's there's most great artists have a method of some sort. Um, I mean, there is an art to it, but there's also a method to art. So one of the things I've studied a lot is storytelling, and what every culture ever has in common is a storytelling tradition. Exactly. Every religion has a storytelling component. Jesus, you know, he's famous for the Sermon on the Mount, but did he preach many sermons that were recorded in the Bible? He was a master storyteller, but yes. that's also a lot of the rabbinic tradition. Yes, yes. A lot of the rabbinic tradition was stories. Yes. And I was going to say, we don't, the Bible doesn't start with, First thing you should know is there is one God. Second thing you should know is that it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes through this creation account. And then it, like Genesis is stories. It's, it is absolutely stories. And I, <clears throat> did you ever listen to the Jordan Peterson uh, thing on, you know Jordan Peterson? Yeah, 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 yeah. His, his uh, YouTube accounts, he, he takes the Genesis uh, and a lot of those stories, and looks at them not from a theological standpoint, but purely psychological. Mm-hmm. 
And having been somebody who had studied this, who had taught this, who had, you know, done more study than most people on it, it was absolutely mind-blowing. So yeah. if you get some time, go ahead and do that. But yeah. back to the storytelling. Yeah, and, and on that note, looking at, I want to say his name is Joseph Conrad, uh, wrote Hero with a Thousand Faces. Okay. Uh, I've heard the book. I, yeah. I didn't put two together. but It's um, George Lucas credits that with why Star Wars is, has lasting, has staying power. So I think another I, great storyteller. Yes, fantastic storyteller. So I think, I think I may be wrong on the author, but here with a thousand faces is perfect. Uh, anyways, with um, with storytelling, storytelling is huge. It's important. It's you know what do we know about Greek history? You know a lot of it we know from the stories they told about themselves, the plays they wrote, the books they wrote. Uh, well, take mythology. Yes. In Norse mythology, Greek mythology. I used to think of mythology as this evil thing. Right. And then paganistic. Paganistic, <laughs> absolutely. And then I got into listening to uh, Jordan Peterson, and he was talking about the Bible, and he's talking about this mythology of the Bible. And I'm, at first, part of me starts getting offensive, offended by it. Defensive, yeah. Right. Defensive, more about it. And then he starts explaining that the purpose of mythology is to take these eternal truths and to tell them in such a way that I understand that people will understand. Yeah. So these stories, Jesus telling parables, Jesus telling parables. Right. And, uh, and that is the beauty behind it. So you're studying storytelling. What do you, you got a certain resource? You're taking a class. I'm just kind of following different people. Yeah. Um, Joseph, it's Joseph Campbell, not Joseph Conrad uh, that wrote here with a thousand faces. Kind of got on it there. Stephen Pressfield writes a blog where he talks about this sort of thing. A lot of people are writing. I mean, there's just been this renaissance of people writing about how to create art. It's been mm-hmm. pretty fantastic. Um, but yeah, you know, and you're exactly right about mythology. So uh, when I got angry on this topic, the story of George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. Uh huh. We're pretty sure it's completely made up, apocryphal. <laughs> um, that is, somebody described that as a piece of mythology. And I remember being flabbergasted because there's no gods popping down. There's no heroes with magical powers. But it's the story that we tell to, first off, cast George Washington in a certain moral light. Mm-hmm. And secondly, to trade in on his, cash in on his prestige as an upright figure to teach subsequent generations, you should never tell a lie. Right. And also you should never chop down cherry trees, which is a lesson we've lost more than the even so more so than the lying part but well uh, and that's the purpose of storytelling and mythology yeah and, and you could probably put the two together yeah and is to convey that truth and we do it with our children I mean yeah. the whole thing about Santa Claus you know here's a mytholo- mythological figure that's wanting to inspire children to be good yeah and we do that all the time yeah so I kind of I like telling stories I love listening to stories mm-hmm. uh, one of the ways you've interacted with me on Facebook is I tell these little clips of stories that I, I love them. Thank you. That I encounter in my day. Um, and people respond to that. Now I could put up, I used to be like really pretentious and put up these really heavy quotes from great thinkers and philosophers and three people would like them. One of those person invariably was my mom. So uh, <laughs> I was really influential there, but I started like telling stories and just I'd be out and about and somebody I hadn't seen in 10 years would walk up, but, but then I, I was friends with on Facebook, walk up to me and go, I love your stuff on Facebook. 
And I had no idea they were even paying attention. So stories are powerful. And I, I've come to realize that stories are powerful. Um, I think a lot of my generation's perspective on life comes from the great stories we, we've, we've read. Some of the, uh, you know, we're really anti-fascist. And I think that a lot of that comes back to uh, the, like the Harry Potter franchise. The villains yeah. were fascistic or fascist, uh, if that's even a word. Uh, we'll make it one. Hunger Games. Um, mm -hmm. And both of those stories are kind of recasting old themes, old classic themes. Uh, Hunger Games is very famous as being a retelling of the Theseus myth from Greek mythology. And that people listen to stories and they internalize the messages. Um, I can't remember, you know, take any political Facebook post you've seen or the last sermon you heard, and could you sit there and give me a pretty good retelling of what was said? And the answer is probably no. You're right. Uh, one of my favorite little quips you gave, and I always laugh about it, you have a client, uh, you can get him a reduced sentence. <laughs> you want to go ahead? Yeah. Well, I, I approached this client. I want to hear your story. Yeah. Not, not your Facebook type version. Yeah. I want to hear your... This person... I think it committed, it's called a C fel C uh, misdemeanor, which means that they could spend 30 days in, like the most you're looking at is a 30-day sentence. Okay. So you could be on probation for 30 days, or you could be in jail for technically 30 days, but because of the rates at which you serve sentences, it'd be more like 22 days. And I said, you, this person is in trouble constantly, and they were tired of dealing with him. So the offer was he could go on to, if this is the story I'm thinking of, he could go on to house arrest with his mother, or he could go spend the, you know, 22 days in jail. He thought about it and went, I think I'll do the jail. <laughs> I've never heard, like, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a... I know, think, I think what you wrote in there was, uh, oh no, don't, don't do that. I, I'm, she needs time to calm down. Yeah. Well, his, his, and I, it, it took me by surprise because most of the time you walk up to somebody, first thing out of their mouths are, what can you do to keep me out of jail? Yeah, yeah. He's like, what can you do to keep me away from my yeah. mom? Well, yeah, because his thing was like, oh, I know. 30 days is probably t enough time for her to cool down. <laughs> and I fell over laughing. I went over to the prosecutor and said, actually, he wants to do jail. And the prosecutor did this serious double take. I went, really? And I said, well, he thinks that'll be enough time for his mom to cool down. <laughs> and the prosecutor lost it. <laughs> now the judge is looking at us like, what, what? So... Well, when I was before the judge, uh, it was uh, 40 hours incarceration and uh, three days community service. Mm -hmm. And I said, how many hours is community service? Well, it's eight hours a day. I said, so 24 hours total? And he said, yeah. I said, can I just do another day in jail? <laughs> <laughs> the A probably gave birth, excuse me, the judge probably gave birth to a cow in the middle of the courtroom. <laughs> He's like, you want to do another day in jail? I said, I don't want to do one day in jail. But if I've got 48 hours down, what's 24 more? I don't have yeah. to take off work. Yeah. And uh, Or give up three days of your life. Or give up three days of my life. And he's like, okay. Uh, I was also gambling. They let me pick when I wanted to go in. And it was uh, Labor Day weekend, so yeah. I picked. I gambled on that because I was banking. I was going in for, it wasn't a violent offense. Mm -hmm. And I was banking that it's Labor Day weekend, holiday weekend. They get overcrowded and they boot me. Yes. And sure enough, sure I enough. Checked, out, checked in on Friday night, early Sunday morning, Yeah, I'm out. That's happened to me. That's happened to several of my clients where 
So there, there are some sentences where you got to do a mandatory minimum amount of time. Right. Uh, DUIs being one notable example. There was one guy who called me and said, so I, I reported on Friday like I was supposed to. They let me out the next day. That's not right. And I said, yeah. I said, what did that, the, you know, the intake area look like when they brought you out? I said, it was so crowded, I sat there for two hours before I could go in and change into my civilian club. Yeah. And I said, okay, so it was too crowded, and they just, they booted you, and they're going to do your outtake paperwork. They're going to file your outtake paperwork 24 hours from now. He goes, that sounds illegal but wonderful, so okay. <laughs> no, I mean, when the, when the officer called me, I go down to the, the door, and uh, he says, you're, you're out of here. I said, okay, wait, before I go through this door, when you say I'm out of here, do I got to come back? Yeah. <laughs> he said, nope, time served. Yep. I said, done. Yeah. And that happens with more frequency than you think. There, there, there's a lot of weird stuff that, like, if people knew what was going on behind closed doors in our great democracy, it would uh, shock people. I, I don't even mean the, like, political backroom deals going on. I mean just the regular Joes on the front lines doing weird things. Well, what happened to me was when I checked in, I didn't know they were overcrowded when I checked in. And so they put me in this cell that had sliders and clickers. And so mm-hmm. the, you guys that don't know, it's a, you have a cell and the doors slide shut and clicks and you're not going out. You're in this cell. Um, <clears throat> it opens up. We all go down to eat the next morning. All of a sudden, the lights flash. Everybody gets up. Of course, the whole auction, hey, who's got an apple? I got this. Everybody's yeah. wanting to trade their food. The lights flash. All these guys get up and start going up to the cell. When I asked this guy, I said, what are we doing? He said, this is 24-hour lockdown. Said, what? He said, yeah, everybody in here is uh, felons and violent offenders. What would you do? And I told him, he's like, you're not supposed to be in here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were overcrowded. But they, when they, And they stuck you where they had a free bed. Well, and they didn't. But the first cell they stuck me in, it was a two-man cell. Three guys were already in there, and they put me in there. Mm-hmm. Made you really popular, I'm sure. Well, it, it was like 2 in the morning. So the two guys in the bed were already uh, in bed. One guy's laying on the floor. I just curled up with my little mattress that they gave me up against mm-hmm. the corner. A couple hours later, they opened the door, took me to another cell, uh, there was two guys in that one. One was dope sick laying on the floor. The other one had the bottom bunk, so I just jumped up in the top bunk and did my time there. When I got picked up with that broken tail light that I told you about earlier in the podcast, <clears throat> they put me in general population. And if you guys don't know, that's just a great big room with a bunch of bunk beds and everybody walking around. Within two hours, I was like, can I go back to the sliders and clickers? <laughs> because... It's a whole lot more private. <clears throat> I got one or two guys to think about there. Well, here I got 40 or 50 guys yeah. just roaming around. I don't want to be in here. Yeah, and the guys who have been in that 24-hour lockdown have probably been there for a while. Yeah. So if, if they came in on something high, then they've probably had that process out of their system. In Gen Pop, you're all thrown in there, and there's probably half the guys in there are on something. They are, and the ones in, <clears throat> like, you're right, the ones that were in there in the, uh, I don't have to tell you, you're right, you knew that. The know, ones, yeah. Yeah, the ones that are in. You, you can tell me that as much as you want, though. That's right, I appreciate hearing it. The ones that were in the uh, sliders and clickers, <clears throat> they're all headed someplace, too. Yeah. They're all heading someplace. Yep. I mean, they've been convicted. They're felons or violent criminals. They're going to another facility. Once they serve their time here, they've probably got yeah. another charge. So. And the other facility is better. 
they get more credit, like, you know, good days in the federal prison, excuse me, the state prisons. And if they screw up or cause problems locally, they're going to have to stay locally longer, and it can really screw up their parole. So there's all that. But Now, another thing I noticed in there, <clears throat> I was, you know, I had my pre-assumptions about people who are always constantly in the legal system. Yeah. And when I was in there, I met these guys that were young, and they kept talking about, oh, yeah, over here in this jail, and over here in that jail, and mm-hmm. over in this jail, and I'm going to this jail next. And I thought, why is your life like this? Why yeah. are you allowing yourself to continue like this? And then I got popped for that, uh, with that tail light when that one agency didn't tell the courts I'd done something. And I ended up back in court. And then I quickly realized, I see how people give up. Mm-hmm. Because what the courts told me is, at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to make sure we have this information. Mm-hmm. Well, I had this assumption that agencies talk to each other. That's the biggest fallacy in law enforcement and criminal justice that's out there, to be honest with you. But, yeah, it's... Well, and that's when I realized I see how people who don't have resources, who maybe not very well educated or schooled in life, mm-hmm. quickly give up and get caught in that cycle because that cycle is not designed to get you out. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've represented people who have been in and out of jail. We call them repeat customers or frequent flyers. Yeah. Uh, because we're really empathetic like that. Um, but, you know. Well, because you become jaded. You become very jaded. And even as a defense attorney fighting for these people, you get, we probably get jaded before anyone else does. I um, bet. But, like, probably the second or third time I represented somebody like that, and, you know, I had, re- I had represented them multiple times in a short amount of time, you know, just kind of start talking to them about their, their life story. And, you know, they're, I said, aren't you tired of being in here every three or four months? I kind of shrugged and said, yeah, but what can you do? And, you know, that's how his parents were. That's yeah. how his uncles and cousins and every, his, his family lived their life. So, you know, you and me, I've never been in jail. I've never been, I've been pulled over for stuff, but speeding, traffic related, never been arrested. Mm-hmm. I have been in jail as a visitor, but never as a inmate. Right. That would be, going into the criminal justice system as a criminal would be extremely bizarre and new to me. It was for me. And it was for you, and it's probably new for most people. But for people that grew up in it and where it's a constant fact of life, you just kind of become used to it. No, I got a cousin. Almost like abuse victims. I have a cousin down in McMinn County. The joke is that uh, uh, that's his apartment. Yeah. yeah. McMinn County Justice says, oh, yeah, my cousin lives over there. Um, He's just been in and out, in and out. So much so that it was a Thanksgiving morning, and he was taking a turkey over to his mom's house on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And he had been popped on multiple DUI charges, so he wasn't supposed to be driving. The county knows who he is. It's a small county. He's driving down the road. Of course, they pull him over. He's not supposed to be driving. Now he's drunk. <laughs> and uh, they said you could hear him on the scanner saying, somebody better get that turkey to my mama. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, to the McMinn County Sheriff's Department's credit, they drove that turkey over to his mama's house and delivered it to her. <laughs> oh, good for them. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so to kind of go back to, and this is kind of illustrative of the point I was working up to about stories, is um, stories are very, continue to be very important to us. Again, 
you know, most people aren't familiar with like the great body, like Churchill's works as a historian or as, mm-hmm. even as a speechwriter. Know who, but they know, may know who he is, how important he is. But most people could tell you in detail, like the plot to Harry Potter if they're into Harry Potter, or Hunger Games if they're into Hunger Games, and those are. Or a lot of these Marvel stories. Or a lot of these Marvel stories. So, I think storytelling is very powerful, and I find that if you look at somebody across the table from you, at, you know, not by labels, so you know, political, so liberal or conservative or pro-life or pro-choice or you know, pro-gay marriage or anti-gay marriage, whatever, whatever label is out there. Um, and instead, you're looking at them as a collection of stories. With, that kind of changes the games. And we all love stories. The, we do. You, and you and I are sitting here, we're talking about our thoughts on life and everything and um, how if the world listened to us, it'd be a better place. But um, we've also told a lot of stories to each other. That's how, you know, your introduction to me, you reached out to me on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Your introduction to me included telling the story behind your arrest and everything. And uh, you had reached out to me because you'd seen the stories I was telling, and that's a powerful form of communication. And I find you can sit there and, as a, as a, as a conservative, as a Christian, I found that liberal atheists have great stories. I have too, and that's. Uh, I think I've learned to articulate this better going through my divorce, and uh, after coming out of the dark, difficult part of it, I began to realize that. Her and I will always view each other through the lenses of our experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what that did for me is when I would get a response from her, I would have to sit there via text or email or whatever how we were communicating at the time. I'd have to sit back and say, okay, instead of looking at this through the lens of my experience with her, what if I looked at this through the lens of her experience with me? And that helped me to not shoot an arrow back. Yeah. That helped me to say, okay, maybe I need to go at this from a different angle because her story and my story on this whatever situation is is viewed through the lens of our experience. Um, I also I put something on Facebook a couple of years ago, very much to the same lines of what you're saying, is when you're looking at somebody that you disagree with, what's the, they're telling you a story. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to argue the point, what's the story that they're telling you. And it's often mm-hmm. their life experience. And I learned that, you know, living in Portland, Oregon, being around a lot of the gay community growing up in Southeast Tennessee and not being prominent in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even or at realize, least not in a good way. At least not in a good way. I mean, I didn't even realize George Michael was gay. I'm up in front of the MTV going, wake me up. Before. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no clue. Okay. Uh, I didn't understand the community. I move out there and, you know, these guys are coming to my house and having dinner. They know I pastor a church at the time. My kids are there. I meet. We're going out. And I realize they're amazing people, just like my religious friends mm-hmm. are amazing people. Mm-hmm. If I just take time and listen to their story and I automatically say, oh, well, you're gay. I'm not having anything yeah. to do with you. I remember hearing a story once from a guy who uh, he was a pastor, and uh, he told a story about growing up in the like 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. So... When he was in high school, they started busing, which is a term for um, taking segregated schools and combining them. This is during the integration. Yes, yes. So desegregation, desegregation, integration, whatever integration, term you yeah. want to lose, excuse me, use. 
um, and he he was a football player. And all you know, all of a sudden, he's coming in, and there's you know these black dudes. And he tells he tells a story about uh, like walking in, and this was this just made us laugh so hard. But you know, they 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 shower, they were walking around in various states of undress. Right. And you know, he went, wait a minute, they've got the same anatomy I've got. <laughs> wait a minute. You know, and we're we're laughing, but to be fair, it's 2018. It's 2018, yeah. We've had these discussions for many more years than he'd had them. So that kind of got his attention. And uh, then, like, two weeks or so later, they're playing their first game, and uh, a fight breaks out against the other team, which was not desegregated. And uh, one of his one of his uh, African-American teammates gets punched in the face. And uh, my friend, not- excuse me, this, this, this uh, pastor just looks over, and his teammate is holding his hand over his nose, which has been bloodied, and and saw that that was red blood. Yeah. Which again, these are just an, an anatomical. We had all these assumptions. Yeah. What it did was made him go, "That guy's a human being, just like me. Mm-hmm. Different, but just like me." And he ended up becoming really good friends with that individual. And you know, that's that 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 sounds silly. But when you're being taught... In our state of awareness, yeah. it sounds silly. Yeah, yes, that's, thank you. That's, um, but when, you, when he, he went back and talked through what he'd been taught, he was um, taught that these were, this was an inferior race, that they were less evolved, that um, the reason we had segregation was actually for their own good because they're not quite ready to hang out with quote-unquote normal people. Right, more and evolved. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, which, you know, he's telling us this, and again, this was like in the early 2000s. It was offensive then, it's offensive now. And, he, you know, he's sitting there going, this was what I've been taught as a kid by my teachers. And the educated people. The educated people. So, to this day, we tell people to trust their teachers. And, right. you know, that's what he'd been told. And then they taught him this crap. Which, you know, don't know the story behind why they believed what they believed. It was common belief then. It, it was a common belief. Um, I think even uh, Darwin... Uh, I, may, I may be No, you're, you're correct. On the origin of species, uh, was a dis- one of the things it discussed was why some races were superior to others. Okay. I was wanting to say Darwin had even proposed this. Yeah. But. yeah. So it's been... And, you know, I... So this has been taught religiously. It's been taught scientifically. I mean, if, if your pastors, your science teachers, and everybody you know are telling you this is an inferior race of humans, the fact that he saw these two instances and realized on his own that they weren't is incredible. Yeah. Now, he, he came to conclusions that now we would consider just duh, but it was incredible based on his cultural context that he came to those. It had to be mind-blowing for him. It was. It had to be this moment where, okay, everything I believe to be true has just been shattered. Yes. Yes. Did he join the fight? Yeah. He, did he uh, get in the fight with the other team? He, he did. So, Good for him. So the, uh, well, not, not, not in that particular okay. moment. But the next time there was a fight broke out, he, uh, he got in a fight. He got booted from the team, from, from, from the game. Um, and he said that the other team pulled off cheap shots against everybody all night long, and when their team fought back, they were booted. Yeah. So it—that's uh, bad refs. Yeah, it, it really <laughs> is. Refs. It really is. But he—he he, he talks about, you know, 
by the end of the game, three quarters of the team had been booted. <laughs> and they're all sitting there, and they had this moment together. Like, we just all went through this. There's and, something bonding about uh, combat sports. There's something yeah. bonding about team sports. Yeah, and, and, and also fighting together. There is something very much bonding about fighting together. Yeah, so, and so you know, sounded, that's one thing sounded I love a lot the, like Remember the Titans. Well, that's one thing I love about the military. The military was probably one of the first government organizations to, to fully integrate. I think it was. Yeah. I think that happened under uh, Harry Truman. I, it possibly did, and, and there was a lot of debate about it. Yes. When they say band of brothers, they weren't joking. You get in there with a military group, and it doesn't matter. We're all the same. We're all pukes, according to the mm-hmm. sergeant right now. <laughs> and there is a bonding that takes place. What, what, what branch were you in? The Marine Corps. Okay, now, and I'm going to say this, not because I know, but this is me asking. I have heard that they refer to uh, each other as dark green or light green? My, my senior drill instructor was an African-American, and he said there is, no, there is no black and white in the Marine Corps. There's only dark green and light green. Yeah, and it's kind of that whole, you're all in the same boat. You yeah, know? I hate you all. Yeah, <laughs> you had to crawl under the same barbed wire that your African-American right. buddies had to crawl under. So, you know. We fought each other, and we, and we fought with each other. I mean, yeah. it's just... That was boot camp. Yeah. And, you know, it's stuff, it's experiences and it's stories that, that change people. If we were to snap our fingers and in the table next to us we had a white supremacist pop out of the air, if we pointed a finger in his face and said, you know, you son of a gun, you're terrible, you're awful, you need to change your ways, ain't going to happen. Right. We automatically put up a, a wall and we automatically start arguing about something. But we yeah. say, hey, where are you from? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let me get you a cup of coffee. Oh, you're from you're from you're from Athens. My buddy here, Scott Birdwell, is from there. Who's your, you know, who who you kin to? <laughs> right. You you start building on those bridges, but we're not doing that politically today. We're right. not listening to each other's stories. Right. And you know, I I look at I, I'm a history nerd. I noticed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and we, uh, my sister and I, recently took a road trip through the Northeast. Uh-huh. And because I'd never been to like Philadelphia or Boston for these Revolutionary War sites, and I was there, and you know, in a lot of the whitewashed history, and I use that term intentionally, whitewashed history. That'd be get, a good podcast name. <laughs> whitewashed history. Oh man, well, new plan for you and me. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we hear about how these wise, intelligent people came and they reasonably discussed things and. Bada bing, bada boom. We've got the Declaration of Independence yeah. and the Constitution. Yeah. Didn't happen that way. No. You had you probably had just as much difference of opinion across the political spectrum as you have now. Well, and then people tell me, "Well, oh, politics today is so blah blah blah." It's not how it used to be. I said, "Have you ever read the Lincoln Douglas yes. debates?" Yes. <laughs> when they were traveling around, they were calling each other's mothers' names. I said, "Do you even know anything about Andrew Jackson, who was as president, beat some guy with his cane?" Yeah, yeah. No, politics is a lot more calmer now than it used to be. Yeah, or speaking of Kane, there's a, in the House of Representatives, there's one pro-slavery guy who took a cane and beat the crap out of an abolitionist guy. I'm I'm completely blanking on their names. It's a famous moment. Uh, In in the Civil War, we went to war with each other. In Jim Crow, uh, white supremacists, launched a secretive militia terrorist organization to keep African Americans quote unquote in their place and to uh, fight against the uh, reconstructionist efforts by the rest of the country 
So yeah, things are bad right now. Things are nasty. Things are polarized. But you know, our senators aren't challenging each other to duels. Right. Now, there are some that I really wish would shoot each other. <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't enjoy hearing about yes. this or watching it. but uh, yeah. Well, yeah, there's that one story where Andrew Jackson was walking, I guess, out of this. White House. White House. A guy comes up, puts a gun in his belly, tries to shoot him. The gun misfires. He takes his cane and just beats the guy. Yeah, I think that's within the first week of his election. Right. Uh, and that was the first known murder, assassination attempt on an American president. So... Uh, you know, people say don't mess with Texas. I always say don't mess with Tennessee and tell that story. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. They like to fight. Yeah. So I, I just, uh, I think we need more political discourse than debate. And I know that it's easy for you and I who are not politicians to sit here and to claim on that and sound very wise and self-righteous. But I think the way that starts, because the, the people in, let's say, D.C., yeah. who are, you know, what they're doing when they're doing these crazy things is they're playing to their bases. They're right. pandering to their to their following. And if we, their followers, started preaching across the line, telling our stories, listening to other stories, the listening is the most important part of that. Uh, they're, when, when they play to their bases, if we're wise and mature about things, they'll be wise and mature out of just a pragmatic self-interest. Uh, there's an author named Larry Wingnut uh, who says, your kids are your own fault. Yes, I like that. Um, I I tell people when they're complaining about their politicians, your politicians are your own fault. Yeah. Uh, we are not a result of our politicians. I mean, our the, the reason that the average American is having all these problems isn't because our politicians are having problems. The reason our politicians are having problems is because we're electing them. We're the yeah. ones putting them back up there. A friend of mine who is very liberal, I remember running into him a few weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, something that turned to politics, but he just made the comment, he goes, I'm pissed off that Trump was elected. But about a month after the ele- excuse me, month after the uh, inauguration, kind of looked around and went, you know, we did nominate Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. So, and I often wonder, because there is a lot of things getting passed in Washington. Yeah. And we don't hear about it because we're talking about all this other stuff that's that leads and bleeds. Yes. Um, I often wonder. <clears throat> that these guys who get on CNBC, Fox, CNN, and just have these vehement statements against each other, how many times they go out and get a cup of coffee and they say, hey, let's work this thing out. Yeah. But on, it's kind of like WWE. I often refer to politics for me as like WWE. You, you know those guys in WWE, they're staying in the same hotel, they're getting out of the same vans, they're changing in the same locker rooms, then they get out on the ring and they're vehemently opposed characters. I often wonder how much of that's going on in Washington. Yeah. There's a... I remember hearing the story when the former Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, died. Yeah. There was a someone who, back when she was Prime Minister, had been a vocal opponent of hers, still alive, still active in politics. Like, when she died, he posted on Twitter or Facebook or something, ding-dong, the witch is dead. That's nasty. That's nasty. And, 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 and British politics are personal. Yeah. And they're nasty in ways that we can't even comprehend. We're just watching them debate in the House of Commons. Yes. It's unbelievable. It's, it's fun. It, it's, it's great entertainment, but it's, it, and it's nothing like us with our rules of parliamentary procedure. But uh, he put Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, which caused a furor. Uh, and he... Wow. Uh, at, at, like, right at the height of this, somebody took a picture in a pub 
of this figure and a famous, or I say famous, a well-known local uh, political, excuse me, conservative guy who had been like a Thatcher supporter back in the day, sitting together in a pub having a beer and laughing over the tweet, you know? <laughs> um, so. Well, you got to, and then that's what I wonder. How many times they're sitting there and they say, okay, you say this, and then we're going to go up and we're going to oppose this, but we've already got this bill worked out. Yeah. So this this is your storyline, this is my storyline, but we're this is what we've already got worked out. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think a lot of politics is stagecraft and it's acting. Um, well, they call it political, well, they, I don't know how many, how many they are, but they call it political theater for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, your novel and this guy, is, your, is it, is it uh, a representation of that? Is it a modern take on it that? Is, I'm, it is. So, it's fiction. That's the first thing that should be said. Okay. Fiction based on a real event. But what one thing that a guy named Bat, Matt Bird in a book called Secrets of Story talks about is this redemptive narrative. Yeah. That's a term he, he coined. And he uses Star Wars as an example. Well, I started to say, Star Wars is a great example of that. Yeah. What happened, Star Wars came out right after the Vietnam War. There was a lot of collective guilt over America's participation in an an imperialistic war. Yeah. And when Star Wars came out, it gave us an opportunity for some escapism and for rooting for anti-imperialistic forces and I never correlated the two yeah I, I hadn't either until he talked about that and he didn't go into detail but I would say the same thing is true of of uh, Lord of the Rings yeah it's written by a World War One veteran who uh, really wrote with a World War One kind of perspective I don't think it's this analogy of World War One but there is in the Lord of the Rings, there is a literal physical boundary between good and evil. Mm-hmm. The forces of good and the forces of evil. Uh, and that's kind of where how World War I was perceived. And World War II, to a lesser extent, was perceived. Mm-hmm. Was back in the day, you could look at a line on a map, and to the left of it, say that's the forces of good, and on, to the right, that's the voice, forces of evil. Yeah. And right now, we live in a world... It's very blurred. It's very blurred. Go look up, so like the conflict in the Middle East, for instance. Show me on a map where the good guys are and where the bad guys are. Right, and that was a Jocko Willink. Yes, uh, did a podcast the other day where he was doing an interview. God, I can't believe I'm forgetting this guy's name, but he had been an officer in Vietnam, and that's he said that was the frustration. Yeah, you did not know who the enemy was. Right. He said, and my guys hated the South Vietnamese just as much as they hated the North Vietnamese because they couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. And that led to its own series of debacles. Yeah. I think we've been somewhat okay. Uh, Certainly, we've been a lot better in what's going on in the Middle East, but you're right. A lot of what's going on there is we have no idea. Who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. Yeah, and where our line is and where our line isn't. Right. So with Lord of the Rings, it let us go back to this to this story where there are lines. You can tell the good guys from the bad guys. It's hard to mistake an orc as a good guy. <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, you can look at him, you know. Yeah. So we want, I think that's how we want to view the world. And I, I love Tolkien, and I agree with a lot of his conclusions about 
good and evil. Um, but at the same time, I think if we try to transpose a lot of that literally onto the world in which we live and into geopolitics in particular, that can lead us into some issues. So Lord of the Rings came out, I want to say December of 2001. The movie. The movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fellowship of the Ring. And then 2002, 2003, or maybe it was 2002, 3, and 4, I forget which. But it was right after the uh, September 11th attacks. Oh, yeah. During the initial stages of the War on Terror. And it kind of gave us this relief from, holy crap, we don't know what we're doing over there. And we had that moment. And I think uh, The Dark Knight, the, the, the second Batman movie Christopher Nolan put out, was kind of the same. I mean, the Joker was kind of like this front, it was a terrorist, essentially. Yeah. And Batman and all the other, and his allies had to grapple with the moral implications of fighting. How do you stop this? Where, where's the line you cross? How do you, how do you oppose this? And it just, these were stories that kind of led us either into some escapist fantasy or into kind of a, like, the Joker's not this fundamentalist, jihadist terrorist and that's what we're kind of used to seeing that's kind of who quote unquote the enemy is nowadays especially back then and it allows us to have this conversation about or the, this this debate either internally or with other people how do you fight that and we're really having a conversation about our real life experiences without all the emotions and the preconception preconceptional baggage we bring to any issue like that or any debate like that. So this conversation that we've just got into here, you'll probably agree with me that a large majority of people who are watching these movies never think this deeply about them. Yes. And the implication. But I think they do internalize the message to some extent. They probably do. And one of the things I've always, not always, but one of the things I've wanted to do in the last few years is I've wanted to find like a place like this yeah. and do like a little art house movie theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, let people come in, just have chairs scattered around, uh, have some cocktails available. Of course, it'd be adult only, but show a movie. But before I show the movie, somebody comes up and they talk about just what you're talking about. Okay, in this story, these are some of the things that are taking place, and, and they make these correlations. Mm-hmm. Maybe we show Dark Knight, and we say this came out after you know, 9-11, and these mm-hmm. are the things that we grappled with, and then watch the movie. Right. Think about it from that perspective. Yeah, yeah you, 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 you see them to think about it from that perspective, then watch the movie, and then after it's over, as everybody's mingling, you know, getting another cocktail or whatever, spend the night, I think that conversation would change about that movie. Yes. Instead of talking about the CGI and talking about this line or that funny line or this punch, the conversation would change. That, that's one of the things I've always wanted to do with a little art house movie theater. Yeah. Now watch, somebody's going to go do this and make a gazillion dollars. Yeah. I'm still going to be doing a podcast yeah. to 12 people. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to be insisting to your 12 listeners for the rest of your that life. That was my idea. That was my idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, so with, with this story, I'm, I'm calling the story Sow the Wind, by the way. It comes from a Bible verse. They've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Oh, yeah. So um, one of the things I'm hoping for with this is to have kind of this implicit discussion about what's going on now so it like I said it's based on true events but it's very fictional and I'm kind of writing some of the values of today into it um, for that very reason so right now anti-semitism is very discredited 
not that it's gone, not that people aren't anti-Semitic. Um, I actually had somebody scream Jewish insults at me, or Jewish slurs, excuse me, at me uh, after a political debate. Are one you time. Jewish? I'm not. Okay. I'm not. And I don't, I don't think I look particularly Jewish, but... I don't know what that look is, because uh, they're Russian Jews, yeah, they're yeah. North African Jews. Yeah. I don't know what a Jewish look is. Yeah, I think... If but, you're going to say, okay, born in Israel, Israeli roots, Middle Eastern, yeah, but that's not Judaism. Yeah. Well, what, I, what I mean by that is more, I don't have a stereotypical... Jewish look. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Just, uh, but when you said anti-Semitism is discredited, I'll tell you what I heard, and you tell me if, if what I heard was correct. Um, it's discredited in the sense that people act like it doesn't exist. There, I think there's part of that, but the other part of it is it's not tolerated in regular conversations as much. Okay. So I have heard, I've heard somebody walk in and like tell a racist joke on. African Americans on Hispanics, and people snicker and go, "Oh, dude, come on, don't be that way." But somebody come in and tell a, a Jewish joke, and there's just like this shock, yeah. Because anti-Semitism is so identified with Nazism, and it should be, and it should be, it should be. And you know, again, we were um, the face of the Holocaust is like Schindler's List and Anne Frank. Uh, so there's been a very the, the survivors have done a fantastic job of telling their story and teaching the lesson of never again. We've not necessarily done a great job listening, but the message is out there. So when I say um, anti-Semitism, it's not something that's so overt and explicit that we run into it on a consistent basis, whereas uh, racism and um, stigmatisms against people of darker skin color, that's normalized. Or gender or sexuality. Yes. Those yes. are normalized. Yes. If we said something like Gestapo violence against Jews, we would automatically, like in our mind, go, well, that's evil. If we said something about um, police violence against African-American youths, people are going to have a strong reaction to it, like, yeah, that's evil, or, well, well not you know, always. Exactly, exactly. It depends on the circumstances. Well, you got to look at the story, move on. Yeah. So I think a lot of people... Because we we have seen anti-Semitism taken to its logical conclusion, we've not, to the same extent, seen um, racism against people of darker skin colors taken out to the same conclusion by by whites. That is, anyways, so it's easier to have a discussion about racism and stereotypes and discrimination when talking about anti-Semitism because we tend to look at that and go, oh yeah, that's definitely evil. Whereas if we had the same discussion, like if I, if I had made it a modern story and portrayed Alfred Dreyfus as an African-American officer in the U.S. military, for instance. From a poor neighborhood. From a poor neighborhood. Uh, people would strongly, a lot of people would strongly identify with the narrative of the government and of the army. Yeah. Because we've heard that narrative before and to some extent, a lot of us still believe it. And that's, I mean, that's an indictment against us. It's not... Although I will say this, the military has been extremely good in, <clears throat> as we said earlier, integrating all groups. Yes. Even like in the Marine Corps, when they started saying, well, we're going to allow women into combat. Somebody asked me my thoughts on it. <clears throat> I said, I know the combat training for Marines. And I know the Marines don't lower standards. So if a woman or a gay man or a gay woman passes that Marine Corps standard, I would fight beside them. Yeah. I know that standard. Because yeah. on that battlefield... 
the, it, here's one of the other differences between uh, Marines. I was in a bar one night, and it was me, a guy that's Korean era, and a young kid that just got back from overseas. And we're all just sitting around talking. Well, hey, where'd you come from? Well, I just got back from overseas. What'd you do? Well, I was in the Marine Corps. Hey, I was in the Marine Corps. Hey, I was in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Next thing you know, we're all buddies. Yeah. Because you band of brothers. Band of brothers. We had this, we had this ethos, this mythology that that yeah. we that we've lived with, and that we were. My psychology professor in, in Bible college, he was teaching on cults one day, mm-hmm. and he started talking about the indoctrination of the Marine Corps and making the correlation between how cults indoctrinate people and how Marines indoctrinate mm-hmm. people. Uh, what one of the students in there who was going to speak up for my defense didn't know is that Dr. Poff had been a Marine, uh, was also a Marine. Nice. And, uh, so he knows. He knows. And so he's, he thinks he's going to speak up my defense. This guy's never served. And Dr. Poff just kind of tilted his head and he looked at me and said, Scott, what do you think? I said, no, I, I very much yeah. agree. <laughs> I'm following you exactly. Um, yeah. But in what Simplify. we Simplify. <laughs> we have this ethos and the guys that have been in the Army and the Air Force that were at the same bar, they said, we don't have that. Yeah. I said, because you don't have our experience. Right. And that's what the uh, second podcast I did, Doug Mentor. He's chamber uh, director at the Chamber of Commerce in Knoxville. African-American. He and I had served in the Marine Corps together. And in the co- podcast, the idea of kneeling for the national mm-hmm. anthem comes up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, my opinion is two things. One, I don't care. Uh, one of the things, and I said, a lot of people who talk to me about it think because I've been in the Marine Corps and I'd served that I should care. Well, and take it personally to boot. Then I'm going to take it personally. And I said, my, my thing is, I, if you want to say that I fought or I served for rights, then I served for his right to do that. Yeah. So for me to take it personally is, would be yeah. hypocritical. Uh, hypocritical. Uh, two, I've not lived his story. Right. I don't know his life experience. So for me as a white guy to say, well, he shouldn't be doing that. Well, maybe if I was him and I lived his experience. Be doing the same thing. And, and I had the same narrative in life that he has about police brutality and violence and et cetera, I'd probably be doing the same thing. Yeah. And I'll say this. I think one of the strengths that our American democracy has had is the uh, right to freedom of expression, the First mm-hmm. Amendment, free speech rights. We've not always done a good job about respecting that but I would much rather somebody kneel in protest and offend and insult me or my dad who's in the Air Force or, or whatever right. than you know to be out rioting or participating in a literal revolution in our country because that's the only that's their only outlet for expression uh, and I'm not trying to imply anything about violence and uh, the people who hold this opinion but you know, if we don't allow protest, if we don't allow one side to express themselves, well, they're going to express themselves. And, and it's going to be really might not like it. Yeah. I mean, look at look back at the beginning of our own country. Yes. We weren't allowed to do that. And yes. what did we do? Well, we yeah. did it. Taxation without representation is a gripe against, you know, our own voice in governmental affairs. So um, with the drive, so kind of maybe restate my position about anti-Semitism has been discredited. If, uh, if I came in here and, you know, if you accuse somebody of racism, they may argue it, they may fight it, but if you challenge them on a particular statement they've made that is, you know, racist or at least you've perceived as racist, 
they're going to sit there and argue, well, I was right about that, though. But if it's a thing of anti-Semitism, they are not going to defend an anti-Semitic statement. They're going to say, no, 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 I didn't say that, or you're misinterpreting me or something. Right. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I draw the line. And I think by having a discussion about race, about political justice, excuse me, criminal justice, about politics, um, and about using these flashpoints to try to force change through, that's a way to kind of have a conversation about our current situation without talking about our current situation. We can have, we can discuss the issues, so the issues they face that we're also facing, and maybe come to some conclusions or new life lessons out of that, and hopefully the situation improves. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm shooting for in my, excuse me, in my novel, uh, or that's one of the, that's what I hope one of the effects of the novel is. What I'm really trying to do is tell this great story that nobody in America has heard before. I've never heard it. Yeah. Until <clears throat> today. Yeah. And most, uh, did I mention the Zionist angle? You said something uh, about Zionist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's flesh that out. The uh, guy that one of so one of the reporters on the scene was observing the anti-Semitic reaction from both the government, but also the populace at large, and he just realized there will never ever be a safe place where Jews will be safe from anti-Semitism, except for a country of Jews by the Jews and for the Jews. So he started writing pamphlets and articles and held the first Zionist conference, I want to say in Zurich, Switzerland, Mm -hmm. within a few years of the Dreyfus Affair. And one generation later, Israel is declared as as a state. So people who have heard of the Dreyfus Affair have usually seen it as a footnote to the, a footnote about the founding of the state of Israel. I would have never put those two together. I know that <clears throat> I know that's a very controversial thing, but and I'm I'm for the founding of the state of Israel. Yeah. Uh, will there ever be peace there? There's never been peace there. Yeah. Uh, is it a worthy goal? It is a worthy goal. But yeah. uh, if if your end goal is that it's absolute peace, you're you're playing a fool's game there. But if your end goal is we're working towards peace, yeah, I think that's a better goal. Yeah. I know also in our country, and this was a discussion I had with Doug Mentor. I mean, he's got a very different experience growing up in Southeast Tennessee than I do. Okay. But we both agree that it's gotten better. Yeah. And the thing about our republic, this experience that we, this experiment that we have called America or the United States, yes, we've done some horrible things. Mm-hmm. But in a very short amount of time in history, we've made some huge progresses to the point that other parts of the world are making those progresses, whether it be women's rights whether it be uh, inter, you know, the working between different races and genders. and We're constantly getting better. Yeah. <clears throat> and that was my discussion with that guy the other day when he said, oh, it's just horrible. People today are just horrible. You can't trust anybody. I'm like, no, 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 dude. It's a lot better yeah. than it was. Yeah. And we are improving. Yeah. And, you know, you've said some things today that I disagree with. I probably said some things today that you've disagreed with. And, you know... Which one of us has the power to get the other arrested for saying that? Neither of us. Neither of us. And that, that's pretty That's pretty awesome, yeah. in my opinion. I uh, recently just kind of put together, uh, and I may be getting the facts wrong, but I think the anniversary 
of Brown versus Board of Education, that opinion being handed down, and that's the opinion that desegregated schools, that ordered the desegregation of schools. And the like confirmation or swearing in of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, mm-hmm. the first female Supreme Court justice, I think those anniversaries coincide or they come pretty close to one another. And when the Constitution was first adopted, was first written and first adopted, uh, neither women nor blacks nor, nor African Americans were enfranchised. They couldn't vote. They could not participate in the government. They had to trust white men to get it right. <laughs> yeah. By no other choice. Um, but we instituted such a brilliant, though flawed, system that all these many years later, both of them have been enfranchised. Not perfectly. Right. Not that there's not uh, racism or... Um, Sexism. Thank you. I lost that word. But both of them have the ability, both groups have been enfranchised, got gaining political influence and power, and um, just recently had our first African-American president. Uh, I am convinced we are going to have a female president within my lifetime. Oh, Um, I I agree very shortly. I think, yeah, I think it's soon, uh, because there are some pretty incredible women out there leading, and because our culture is I wonder if that's why Nikki Haley resigned as UN. I have heard... Lots of people say that, and it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me either. So we'll, we'll just have to see. So, But if it's not her, there will be. And you're right. There's some amazing women out there. There's some amazing, well, there's just amazing people. Yeah. And that's the thing. If we can just get past, you know, somebody's gender, if we can just get past somebody's color, if we can just get past somebody's religion and listen to their stories, we'll find out there's some amazing people out there. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, this English writer named George Eliot came on the scene, this is a long, this is several hundred years ago, wrote some books that were very well received, very popular, continued to be read, and what most people didn't realize for the longest time was George Eliot was the, uh, was a pseudonym for a female writer. Oh, yeah. And I cannot remember the actual name, but, uh, you know. I've heard that story not just about, not specifically about George Eliot, but I've heard that story about other writers. Yeah. Turned out to be men. Or excuse me, women. Women or uh, a different ethnicity or what have you. Yeah, and with uh, like J.K. Rowling, they put her biography like on the back of the book or in the dust jacket or whatever when Harry Potter series first came out. Most people don't read those. I do, but I'm a weirdo. Yeah. Uh, most people don't read those. So when people saw J.K. Rowling, they were thinking of like John Keith Rowling or something. And it, it it's like wasn't particularly well known I think until partway into the series that J.K. Rowling was a female yeah <laughs> and people just went whoa well because unfortunately <clears throat> we do judge yeah I always hear somebody say you always hear people say well now I don't judge well of course you do right before they say a judgmental statement right before they say a judgmental statement usually or if somebody tells me I'm not a racist they're about to tell me why they're racist yeah I, I have this rule if you have to tell me you're not something you probably are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's like one of the one of the two things I'm realizing sets really great writers apart from more mediocre ones is uh, great writers let readers kind of come to their own conclusions. So if I wrote a scene and I ended with, "Man, that one character was a really bad dude," I've failed in writing that 
that scene. Um, if at the end of that you realize this person is an idiot, I've done things right. Right. Uh, the other great pillar is good dialogue, but that's not here nor there. Well, and one of the things that I look at art, because I try my hand at painting from time to time. Yeah, I've heard <clears> you talk about that on your podcast. And my mother, there's this one particular painting that my mom hates. She says, just when I look at it, I just feel, oh, and she doesn't like it. I said, then I win. She said, yeah. what? She said, but I don't like it. And I said, no, if art can evoke an emotion, mm-hmm. whether that's a book, whether that's a piece of painting, whether that's a sculpture or a piece of music, if I can, em- not an emotion, if I can elicit a response, then the artist is one. Yeah. Whether it's the response I want, want it or not, the art has spoken. And that's the thing with, with reading. If the, the books I love to read, my mind's filling in all the blanks. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm creating my own scene in my head. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I'm coming away with an opinion about that person. My mom, <clears throat> when she reads these books, she'll walk around mad at that guy for like two days. Yeah. Mom, he's, he's not real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it must be a good writer. Yeah. So that's, um, I don't know, that's why I've started, instead of sitting there trying to figure out, well, Scott Bridwell, are you a conservative or a liberal? Are you a Christian or not Christian? Are you this or that? Um, instead of focusing on those labels, which I've got my definition of what those mean, you've got a different one. Yeah. You know, your stories are a lot more interesting than your labels. And I, I'd like to think the same about me. I could be completely wrong, but I, I like to think so. <laughs> well, the shirt's pretty interesting. Well, thank you. I'm. Uh, well, what's your process like? I mean, do you get up every morning? Are you one of these guys that says, I'm going to write a thousand words today? Or Yeah, actually, I literally have a goal of a thousand words a day. Um, First thing in the morning? No, 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 no. I'm not a morning person. Um, so you're not a, you don't listen to the 5 a.m. morning <laughs> podcast? Negative. <laughs> Negative. Um, when I, I try to, I've got a goal of a thousand words a day. And I don't, I don't stress out about that goal so much as I do about a, uh, a goal to get 5,000 words a week. Okay. I consistently hit that one because, you know, sometimes I don't like, I had a, I got called uh, yesterday about an emergency I had to deal. I can't go into details, but just, it, it was Your a day got interrupted. Yeah. Life or death situation. I had to drop everything and run and. I didn't, my day did not end until like midnight last night. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit up into two o'clock trying to get a thousand words out, but I'll make up for it some other time. Well, and sometimes in the writing process or the, or the creative process, I should say, sometimes it flows. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's a struggle and you yeah. just got to give up and walk away. Yeah. I found, so a thousand words is roughly three pages on a double spaced word document okay times in roman 12 point font so um and i know that because your word counter tells you yeah my word counter tells me but also i know that's about the size of a word document because um that's what uh, you've read a lot of documents i've read a lot of documents and i was very on top of that when i had like page limits <laughs> or papers in school <laughs> i remember that just trying to get page limits just trying yeah. to squeeze that double space just double maybe yeah. 0.3 yeah see if they won't notice right. uh, they always did but they never commented um but yeah with uh so that that's that can be a lot so you know when i was first writing i was doing well to get 300 words a day in and that's that was like i think that was my original it was like three to five hundred words a day 
Um, but I have found sometimes inspiration strikes. There was a time about a, two or three months ago where I sat down and wrote 5,500 words in two hours. Oh, wow. And uh, it was actually pretty decent. I had to do a lot of work, but it was actually pretty decent. And then there are other times where I can sit and struggle over the course of three hours to get a thousand words out. But I always try to write. And uh, like on Monday, or uh, maybe not Monday, but there was a there was a day last week where I sat down and I wrote a thousand words. And the next day I went in and erased every bit of that and started over. Now that said, by writing that thousand words, I ended up deleting. I realized what I needed to do, and I fixed it. So yeah. it advanced me, but you know, some life is, life is a series of backwards and forward steps, um, which is to say, life is a dance. Life is a dance, <laughs> and I hope you dance. Um, but yeah, my process—I I try to—I always try to write. And so, I, have you mind mapped this? Have you outlined oh, it, it, like is, in some yeah. notes, or is it all just in your head? It and it is just definitely outlined. Like written down outline. Yes, okay. Yes, I've got several copies of it because I'm paranoid about losing it. But <laughs> well, and that was me when I uh, <clears throat> when I was delivering sermons. I would, I'd mind map it or I'd mm-hmm. I'd outline it. I'd go back and I'd scratch through it. I never manuscript it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have friends of mine who'd manuscript it. Mm-hmm. Every word they were going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I couldn't do that. Um, I always just. And maybe that's because when I was in high school, I did storytelling. Mm-hmm. That's how it was one of my competition things in forensics. And I had to, I had to learn the gist and the ebb and flow of the story. So that's how I learned to map out the sermon or the presentation I was going to do. Uh, but I could never sit down and just write it out. And I tried it. Yeah. I tried taking those notes like you've got yeah. and sitting down and banging it out. I, it, maybe it's discipline. It's, I think it is, and it's practice. Um, it was the, it's one of the hardest things I've ever taken on even harder in some ways than law school has been. So hard and rewarding. Yes, absolutely rewarding. Okay. Um, gives me a big emotional release and most, most, uh, most writers talk about how it really helps like resolve emotional conflict in your own life. Well, it does with me in journaling. Yeah, 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 yeah. My journaling is, uh is very therapeutic yeah and i find that the same way but one thing when i first i started this back in like may 2015 and i'm about halfway through so that was it's been over three years it's not i don't think it'll take me another three years to finish writing just because i'm getting better faster more used to it uh but the other thing is and i think once you get past the climax of the story yeah it, it rolls faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you, cause right now I'm in the building up process. Right. I think I'm maybe a few months away from the rolling down process, um, or the de-escalation process. But one thing I really found I struggled with was dialogue. And everything you'll, you'll read by writers on how to write a book, they always, always, always talk about dialogue. Yeah, it's got to be natural. It's got to be natural. It's got to be uh, uh, realistic and believable. So I've read some pretty good stories, like really imaginative, creative stories, where you've got these characters who are having these really stiff, stilted conversations, and it ruins the book, because I do not care about the characters. Yeah. Same with movies, but... Well, that's one one of the critiques I've gotten about the things that I have written, like I wrote my dad's obituary, Mm. and uh, I said, the thing about things that you write, it just sounds like you're talking. Yeah. 
you, you, it just sounds like you talking. I can hear your voice. It's got the same flow. Now, my friends who are grammatic geeks, mm-hmm. you know, really big into grammar and editing, they're like, just let me have it and I'll yeah. fix You need a comma here. <laughs> you, going, you ain't getting this. You ain't getting this. Well, um, I, I started letting them have it, but. Uh, yeah. One, one thing. I guess that's called your voice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have. My dialogue was deplorable in the beginning. And that's okay because. We were talking, it's beginning. You're yeah, new. Yeah, and we were talking earlier. The, the best way to get good at something is to do something poorly a few times. <laughs> so I get figured out. But one thing, beca- I, I identified that my dialogue was bad early on, and that's one of the reasons I started posting these little snippets of my day on social media. Uh, first one, it, it entertains me, and it entertains other people. But at the same time, it was practice for writing dialogue. So most of the snippets I tell, you know, aren't about somebody walking out and slipping on a banana peel and falling on their butt. It's these like back and forth exchanges with people that have a nice little payoff at the end that people react to and laugh at. Yeah. And it gave me a lot of practice with kind of the push and pull that happens in a conversation. Uh, because one of the worst types of conversations to read and, you know, one of the worst types of dialogue to read is where somebody's just, you know, blah, 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 saying this, and the, other, and the other person's going, yeah, you're right, or no, that's not right, and it's just like, okay, whatever, that's not how people talk. Um, there's got to be, it, it's, it's not interesting if there's not push or pull. Um, no, I agree. So, well, I disagree, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's what I like about long-form conversations, like long-form podcasts like this, is there is time to have a conversation. Yeah. You're forced. Uh-huh to engage with each other where some of the short form interviews it's question 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 okay where can we find out more about you thank you for coming on and they're out of there yeah and those have their purpose and they have their mm-hmm. place and i listen to some of those mm-hmm. but uh, the ones that are where they're engaging and they're having the conversation that's when you can bring someone on that maybe you thought you disagreed with or maybe you do disagree with but all of a sudden now you can see things through their lenses yeah uh, one of my favorite examples of this, and you mentioned Westboro Baptist Church earlier, mm-hmm. Joe Rogan interviewed the granddaughter of the founding member. Yeah. Did you ever hear that one? No, but I, I think she has left that church, hasn't she? She left that church, and she tells the story of being raised up mm-hmm. in that church. And, she, and you almost get to the point where you understand why she was doing what she was doing. She had a belief system. Yeah. And you start seeing, I mean, for me and you looking out, thinking, well, you guys are crazy. You have absolutely nothing to do with religion. No, she was raised that this was absolutely right. This is absolutely natural. It's kind of like that pastor friend of yours telling you when he all of a sudden became aware that this African-American teammate was a human. human. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the benefit. If you'd have told me who she was. Uh, I'd probably be like, I don't want to listen to anything she's right. got to say. But because Joe Rogan interviewed her, I find him entertaining. I thought, well, I don't think he's going to be mean to her, but why is he interviewing her? Yeah. And so when I listened to that, I was like, oh, my God. But she's yeah. an amazing woman. Yeah. Have you, uh, do you watch a series on, uh, I want to say A&E called Aftermath? I do not. I, I don't have broadcast TV okay. at all. It's, it's put on by Leah Remini, the... Uh, she was on Kings and Queens, um, or excuse me, wait a minute, King of Queens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. She's a former Scientologist. Oh, wow. And she was a Scientologist for like 30 years before she left. 
So Aftermath is talking about, she interviews a lot of people who came out of Scientology. And uh, so it, it, was, it was eye-opening to me. I, I thought it was just this kooky religion. And it's like, wow, it, you know, she talks about it being a lot more than that. But everyone in there, and these were, some of these were very high officials within the church. Some of them were just your regular peons yeah. in the Sea Org. But um, they talk about like how they get sucked in. And it really, like, you start to realize how people can believe something like that. Well, Jordan Peterson does the same thing when he talks about uh, becoming a Nazi. Mm. He said, what most people don't realize, if you were living in Nazi Germany at that time, the chances that you would have bought into that belief system, the chances that you would have been a Nazi are very, very large. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you first hear that, you think, there's no way. I'd be smarter than that. I'd be more enlightened than that. And then all of a sudden okay. he starts, well, and it goes back to you. The teachers are telling me this. The educated mm-hmm. people are telling me this. The governors are telling me this. The, the pastors are telling me this. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not an overnight snap of the finger thing. Mm-hmm. It's a process. Well, man, we've done this for two hours, hours and yeah. 44 minutes. Uh, how can people find you? Well, um, I'm on Facebook, but you can, the Sue Chef on Facebook is a group. It's a SUE Chef. Um, not posted there in a while because I've been distracted with writing this book, but I plan on firing that back up again. Uh, you can reach out to me um, at the sous chef on Twitter and uh, Corbin Payne on Facebook. I'm pretty open to friend requests. I'll um, I'll be sure and link all that. Hey, Corbin, thank you, my friend. Thank you. All right.